Friends, Brian here for Yes You Can Play Guitar, and thank you once again for checking out the podcast. This is with our interview with the one and only, the amazing live sound engineer, sound man, Scotty Baldwin. For a lot of you, will probably remember Scotty as being the longtime live sound engineer for Prince. Also, he's done live sound for Lady Gaga, who you may have heard of, Earth, Wind & Fire, among other big, big acts, okay? So we interviewed Scotty, and we really clicked with Scotty, as you guys know, my good friend. Anytime I do anything Prince-related, I have my good friend, the solitary adventurer from England, joins me for the conversations. I think the two of us together, with him with his uh, chronological knowledge of Prince, and myself on the technical musical end of things, I think we have a really good approach when we interview people that a lot of the Prince fans might not always get from some of the other interviews because we approach it from different angles. So it really tends to create a really awesome discussion. And Scotty was very enthusiastic. It was a long but amazing conversation. I'm hoping to revisit this with Scotty Baldwin again in 2023 because, you know, I've done some live sound mixing in my time. And, you know, it's just, I could have asked him a million technical questions, but he really got into details telling a lot of really personal Prince stories that I think some of these stories people haven't heard. So it's definitely worth the listen. So remember, guys, if you want to support me in what I do, if you want to support the podcast, a couple of really simple things, some that cost you nothing. First thing, go to my YouTube channel. Yes, you can play guitar. Just click subscribe. It takes, burns half a calorie clicking that mouse button. It does a lot for me. You know, if you want to donate to the podcast, you can go to paypal.com slash yes, you can play guitar. You can donate. Also, you can join my Patreon communities. I have two, one for my reactions. You guys know, if you've checked out my channel, my channel's known for three things. My reactions to musical performances and my analysis of it my interviews, and also for guitar lessons, guitar tips, music talk, music education, celebrating all things music, okay? So you can go to check out my Patreon communities, patreon.com slash yesyoucanplayguitar for my reaction community, and for my guitar community, you can go to patreon.com slash community. Check it out. So without further ado, here is our awesome interview and discussion with Scotty Baldwin. Friends, Brian here for Yes, You Can Play Guitar, and of course, joining us for the special interview is our good friend, good friend to our channel, all the way from the UK, the Solitary Adventure. Thank you for being here. Of course, Hi. there he is, and of course, it is our great, absolute pleasure to have on our show today to talk is Scotty Baldwin, known as the live audio engineer for Prince for many years, many tours, many projects among other big artists as well. Scotty, thank you so much for being here with us today. It's, it's my pleasure. I appreciate being here with you guys. I love your show. Great to speak to you, Scotty. So I think uh, I'll probably start us off. So I'm familiar with you because obviously we've got a lot of long time 
Prince fans in, in mm -hmm. Brian's Patreon community. Um, but what I don't really know is is your background. So do you mind just bringing us up to speed with, you know, where you were born and and your your early years? Well, I'm I'm a Minnesota guy by by birth. I was born in St. Paul, Minnesota, and grew up <clears throat> listening to with three sisters, by the way, no brothers. So we always had disco and R&B acts going throughout my house. It was just always on Earth, Wind and Fire, Lakeside, all these yeah. CV Wonder. We had a lot of music in my house all the time. My parents aren't musical and my sisters aren't particularly musical either, but I sort of caught on to it um, being a younger brother. And, and um, so I was always in, interested in listening to music. And Prince began to be in the in the late seventies, a sort of a soundtrack to my life as a, as a teenager or whatever at that time in Minneapolis. So I grew up hearing Prince and being a fan of 1999. That's when I got hooked in. And, um, uh, but it was until I heard, I'm glad this is a guitar, uh, centered program because I heard Eddie Van Halen play the, the solo from jump. I actually saw the video. And in the video, if you remember, he kind of goes like this. Like when he's about to do his hammer technique, he went like this. I remember that basically, part exactly. Basically saying to everyone, I'm going to show you what I've, what everybody has been wondering about for years. And he goes like this. And he played that part from Jump. And every one of us little kids went and just wanted to know what that was. The next day after that, I went and bought a Kramer guitar like Eddie's. I think a, a Kramer Focus. I still have it here somewhere. It's been painted many times. Um, and quickly found out I didn't have aptitude for, I took lessons and I became okay, but I, I didn't learn the right way. I learned how to play the, uh, I didn't, I learned all the tricks and whammy bar stuff and, and hammering first. And that's not the way to learn. Um, I didn't learn the foundation, but I, I knew I had an aptitude for um, taking the guitar apart and putting it together. I got really good at that. And I got hired as a technician by a local reggae group, did a year with them, really got, got up to speed on the industry and how live music worked, and was interested in uh, sound along the way, just because I heard mixes done wrong. And I always knew something was wrong. And I had a couple of guys, Ron Miller was one and Cody Anderson, two local sound engineers here from Minneapolis, who kind of took me under their wing and said, listen, what do you hear? Well, you change it. You, you go ahead. Yeah, I'm going to go get a beer. You just mess with it. And I would fix it. And I got really good at sound. And then pretty much got discovered by Sheila E. At that point, Sheila and I were friends. And Sheila said, well, you're just going to come on the road with me. You're going to quit Prince as a drum tech. Along the way, I became a drum tech for Michael Bland. She just basically told me I was going to quit Prince and convinced me to go on there. Sheila's very charismatic. And she mm -hmm. sort of said in an Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know, you're going to quit <laughs> Prince and you're, you're coming on the road with me. And I said, yeah, I'm going to quit Prince. I'm going to go on the road with you. And I started just like that, I became a sound engineer and um, things just sort of escalated. I kept getting discovered. I didn't have to work at a sound company for a long time. I didn't have to hump cable or set up PA. I started really mixing right away um, and was known in the industry early as being this engineer that's really soulful and has a big fat mix and, you know, had a focus on on vocals and drums and bass. And, you know, like I really pay attention and I, I over prepare for things if there is such a thing. And so I've always got everything laid out. I'm ready to go. And um, I've kept it musical this whole time. And it just kind of keeps happening to me. I didn't really choose engineering. It sort of chose me. And I, I continue to work. Uh, so, God, now it's my 34th yeah. year doing it. Uh, Scotty, what was the, sorry, Chris. Um, 
What was the first board that you've learned on? What was the first board that you cut your mm. teeth on? Soundcraft 800B or 400B, excuse me. Soundcraft 400B. Really uh, a super great console on which to learn because it used to go out, certain channels would get blown out during the, during the show. Oh, wow. And I had to reach under the console and there was a little round um, piece of foam with a bunch of op amps, um, like little proms that were stuck in there. And I would, I would take the channel and unscrew it during the band playing. And I would pop that channel out, pull it, unseat that, that prom and replace it and put it back in and then quick plug the, uh, the tape into it and, um, uh, and the ribbon into it rather. And then it would go live again. So I was really more than just a live sound engineer. I was being, I was learning how to be a, you know, basically work on a, an F1 pit crew at the same time. Like you had to do it at the same time. So, um, I learned, I learned on a Soundcraft 400B. I, I have a lot of a, a affinity for that, that console. I know it well, I know how it feels. I can still feel what it feels like to, to hold, you know, to touch the pan pots. It was that ingrained in my memory way wow. before digital. So the question I have for you in the years that you've been doing this, have, have you come across something that would explain that you've got a natural aptitude for the, the mixing and the, you know, the, mm. the live engineering? That's that a really good question. You, you have. I, I think what it would have, what it would be, what sets me apart from other engineers as well <clears throat> is my ability to take in the information, the, the studio recordings, anything that we're going to be doing live, take them in and sort of present them to an artist in a conceptual way and say, how do you want to approach this song? Do you want to be aggressive? Do you want to be laid back? Do you want me to mix it this way? I give artists options and I don't see a lot of engineers fully imbibing the spirit of the material they're doing and then coming up with uh, um, options for, in, for, for artists to, as a way for me to engineer it. Um, Lady Gaga was a great example. She, she knew and she recognized she's got a great eye and ear for people who have talent. And she said, I have a feeling you're overqualified for my tour. So wow. I'm going to ask more of you than I think you think I am. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, okay. And she had a list ready of, of her approach to every song. This song, I want to be aggressive. This song, I want it to be maniacal. This song, I want it to be beautiful and lush. And she had her description of the songs. And I said, no problem. I got you. And I mixed those songs with certain reverbs and with certain aggression. And I go up and talk to the musician and say, hey, she really want, wants it agitated here. Let's lean forward in that. Can you play that phrase, lean forward? So I actually ended up being more of a, I want to be careful here. I, I Part musical director, part psychologist, for sure. Um, yeah certainly artistic and, and every bit as important. The engineers are always as important as every band member because the band members aren't heard unless the engineers are, are there to, to put it all together. So <clears throat> I'm, I found my way to be an integral part of the band and the success of, or failure of the band by, by being involved in the material and how it's presented. That's really interesting because that's almost the, the same instructions you would expect her to give a lighting director. Oh, for you sure. Know, I want yeah. this to be, and for you to interpret that sonically is fantastic. Is that yeah. something that Prince would do with you? Oh, for I know sure. We're, yeah. we're jumping the gun by mentioning. No, no, no. We can here. jump all around. Um, Prince sort of always let me do, he, he was a course corrector. Um, hmm. I just 
I just, I've never said that about him before, but he was a course corrector. He let, he knew if many were called, few were chosen. So if you, if you were there, you already had the aptitude to do what you needed to do, to be a part of the success of what we were doing. What he did is if he didn't like something or he felt it was straying, he would like a dolphin, he would sort of bottlenose you over like yeah. a, a sheep, a sheep, sheep dog, right? He would sort of sheep dog you in the direction of what he said. Now, don't let it get too, don't let it get too relaxed. You know, don't let it this, or let's keep it this way. Um, he always left all the effects to me. I asked him once early in mixing, maybe 2001, I said, um, is this okay? Is this, are these effects okay? Is it okay that I go for it on this? And he's like, you do the effects. You, I'll let you know if I don't hear something differently than you're doing it, but that's all on you. That's part of your artistry. I said, great. So any of those detuned vocals and cool things I did um, on the, God, I did them on, uh, I did them on almost all the tours. I had some cool vocal effect or the, the low voice effect, you know, that yeah, kind of thing. And one Night Alone high, Rainbow Children. One Night yeah. Alone Rainbow Children, yeah, Family Name and 1999 and all those sort of things i just yeah. whole lot of love when he was playing guitar i would do the echo that went up and then the one that went down and i just i would okay. go for it because prince never wanted the thing i respect one of the things i respect most about him is he was never he never had any fear was not a fearful mm -hmm. performer in any way um always fully capable and and he had all his faculties there he was ready to attack anything he did and he sometimes ran in a lower gear than he should have or needed to I, I'd seen him be lazy at times as well, but normally he could just shift it into whatever gear he wanted and he would give whatever he needed to give. And he expected that out of the band. He didn't like when I don't, well, clearly he didn't like when people played it safe, you know, mm. when they would, as I say, sometimes people, sometimes people play to win. I always played to win with Prince. I'm very proud of that. Often people play not to lose. And that's mm. a big difference. There's a big difference between how that, how you, we interpret our job and go about it so that I always tried to play to win. And if I made a mistake, it was going to be, a, it was going to be big. Um, and I made very few, if any, I just was on top of it enough. And I could, uh, a lot of that, I attribute my success to how good the band was and how good Prince was. They always gave what I needed them to do to make the mix great. And um, he had a, a ton of great musicians that worked with him. And we all had that same sort of attitude. Yeah. Well, I've got to pick that thread now that you've, uh, you've sure. shown it to us. When would you see him sort of not phoning it in, but the, the term you used was, you know, being lazy. Was that during rehearsals, sound checks, um, or actual gigs? I, I look at maybe my favorite tour with him as One Night Alone live. Mm. Excuse me, One Night Alone. He was creative. Every single day, I felt a new creativity and a new aspect of his angle. His angle was different every day because it was jazz and you had a master jazz players, Renato, Rhonda, John, you know, he, they were really, really on it. And um, so they helped guide him. It certainly wasn't the most musical tour he's ever done as far as fans. A lot of fans left okay. kind of miffed. They were like, what? What did I just yeah. see? I recognize two of those songs. This is horrible. Yeah. Um, but um, so he really worked hard on One Night Alone. I, I saw it in him every single day. Um, musicology, I think his mind was a little bit somewhere else. And I think a lot of what musicology was, was a response to, it could have been, I hope I don't call him out, out of, maybe I shouldn't mention the author's name. There was an author that wrote a book 
well, it's Alex Han. And I think he wrote a book yeah. called, I believe, The Rise and Fall of Prince. Yeah. Something like that, right? Mm -hmm. I believe Prince's musicology Business. tour, yeah. uh, I believe that whole tour was a response to him being looked at as being over. And um, right. because the timing fell just in line for him to respond. And Prince always responded in a musical way to yeah. challenges and things. And, you know, he so, used art so do you as think, his response. Sorry to cut you off. Do you think that that triggered the entire sort of uh, coming back into the, I know he didn't call it a comeback, but it was clearly a, a public offensive for charm, you know, to go on the Grammys, do the duet with Beyonce, and then this massive musicology tour. You, yes. Was that all, do you think, a response to Alex in, in my In my estimation, yes. Because I know he was aware of the book, and I think the timing just laid itself out. I mean, if anyone said to you or anyone else or people listening, like, oh, they're not good at this. One of the first mm -hmm. things we do is, if we know we're prove good at that, is, is prove them wrong. And if we yeah. have the, we don't, most of us don't have the forum to just get out there and prove someone wrong. We don't have a stage for that, literally and figuratively. But Prince did. And so he did everything. His way of arguing, his point was to be artistic and creative and put a tour together. But on musicology, I know in the preparation for that tour, um, he didn't work as I saw it daily, that he didn't work quite as hard as he did in the past. And um, he let a lot of things slide musically. Um, I think as good a job as Greg Boyer, if you know who Greg Boyer is, the yeah, trombone trombonist. Player. Greg's a phenomenally talented uh, player and arranger. I think Greg, you know, having to arrange a trombone and two altos, it's like, yeah. you know, Candy and Maceo, it was, that was wrong from the start. And I'm sure it confounded Greg. I, I won't speak for him, but you want a section, you want five horns or three that are diverse, maybe a tenor and an alto and a, you know, or add a trumpet or something. And so instrumentation was weird. Um, Prince put Renato in a tough uh, spot on that tour because he had just come off of a jazz thing. And then he, Renato kept a lot of holdover sounds going okay. to the pop sound. And, and I don't think a lot of those worked in, in, in musicology. So I have my own definite opinions of that. And I know as an engineer and as a fan of Prince, I was out there going, mm, no, he wouldn't have five years ago, he wouldn't have done this. He would have said, no, you got to fix that, change that, do that. And I was kept waiting for that to occur. And he never, he never did it. I think he, I think he did that one for, for the reason that I stated, which is to show people that he wasn't, um, uh, he was still re should be regarded as a musical force. Yeah. I mean, I, I obviously I never met the man personally. I only know the music and, you know, what's been fed to me through the media. But he had a lot going on in his life at that time also. Um, I think, I you know, the, the financial rewards of that tour were kind of overshadowed in some ways by how clever and innovative it was that he was giving away the album on mm. every seat. And, you know, it, it's one of the the, the many times where he sort of foresaw where the industry was going to go and punched it in the, the nose to show it that he, sure. you know, he had the measure of it. Um, but it's, it's really interesting that you say that. Now, we've kind of skipped over the one night alone, which in my mind, I had like a million questions mm -hmm. because, and I think timeline-wise, we're, we're, we're never going to be able to go through it, these things chronologically with you. I, sure. You know, I can tell that now. So one night alone is the first time where, for me, you could see this man wasn't invincible. 
that age was going to play a part mm-hmm. because it's the dancing stops, mm-hmm. the instrumentation is out in front. He's he's basically in a double-breasted suit for you know two years at that point. Yeah. So was that something that you were conscious of? That oh, of you course. Know, the, the physicality had slowed in that year or so since yeah. the, the the New Year's party. It was quite evident that he was. Um, to those of us that were close to him, that he was going through pain. I didn't know that the pain management was in place per se, but clearly he put, um, and as Brian would love about this era, he put the guitar on and he kept it on for two years. And he really showed, um, I, I, I heard a lot of growth in Prince in those two years, uh, in that whole like era where he, um, he started to think and not only was his rhythm playing always immaculate, but his solos got really, really lyrical and full of motifs and intricate. And he, um, although I was never, God, I don't, I don't think I've ever even said this. I was never a fan of Prince's tone, his guitar tone. I think okay. it was very, it was very nose forward. It was very full of a lot of mids. Um, and I can talk about why I think that is later, but, and that has to do with his hearing, but um, but he had such articulation during that, during that time, he was really, really, he was playing all the time. He was playing every day. And I think when you do something all the time, every day, you get really good at it. And I, I think his playing was just stunning. Guitar playing was stunning at that time. The early Yeah. And he had no foil, did he on that tour? I mean, in tours either side, he'd have Cat Dyson or he'd have Mike Scott right. and Mike. Or, yeah. he, I mean, he just did everything, didn't he? On, on the one night alone tour. I thought it was he had to eat. He, he was covering everything. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of naked to do that. You know, it's, it's, oh, it yeah. was, it was, it was um, a brave of him to do that to, to say, all right, I'm going to be the only guitar in the band. Cause I asked him who's, who else is playing guitar. Yeah. And he just gave me one of those looks like, <laughs> like I need someone else. And, and I'm like, Oh, okay, yeah. cool, man. But I thought, yeah. wow, because I, I asked him because I, I was in that from the sensibility, I was informing my, myself where I was going to place that other player. If they're yeah. on stage and they're little and they're a little bit to stage left, I'm going to pan them that way to get out of Prince's way. And he would always be at 12 o'clock pan noon. And he didn't run a stereo signal. He was he had a mono signal. So um, uh, that's about placement. You know, I didn't care if someone was going to play or not. I just figured someone was and I figure out where I was going to place them. Like I would place Mike Scott different areas and um, to get around Prince so that you weren't fighting all the time. But um, I was quite happy with that that time so when musicology came around i thought we were going to have that same that same attitude and the aggressive attitude maybe it was the fact that he was sort of over the hits you know he had so much new music coming out of him all the time and he was recording a lot and that's when um dave hampton came and was was uh i invited dave to come out and meet prince and prince uh in a perfectly ordinary sense of the the word fell in love with dave and had dave come out and redo everything at Paisley Park. Um, uh, the way Paisley was, was Paisley Park was, the shape it's in now is largely due, the great shape it's Dave. in now, the good things had to do with Dave Hampton and Dave yeah. coming out and, and making it more a m- more musical place for Prince to work. So he was recording at a furious pace as well. Um, and at a prolific pace at that time, early 2000s. And um, so just to, just to, um, I think maybe it had to do with the hits as well. He, he wanted to do new music. He had all, all these new things. And to ask somebody, to ask Donny Osmond to, to go back and sing Puppy Love for the 20,000th time, you know, yeah. I'm sure it doesn't, 
to and try and emote that quality of and they call it puppy. You know, it's just you can sell it, <laughs> yeah. and nobody could sell it like Donny Osmond. I saw it on a nightly basis, and he was fantastic. Yeah. But yeah. Prince didn't live in the past. He wanted to go. He wanted to move forward. Um, he once told me some. I uh, this is one of the memories that I'm not crystal clear on. But he said something like, "I know people just want to lock." He did say people want to lock me in a studio with an Oberheim and a Lin drum machine, mm-hmm. and have me cut all my records with the the stuff from the Purple Rain era. But there's more to it than that. That's yeah. what, and what sort of saying. age was he when he, he said that to you? That was around two. That was in 2002, yeah. where he just he he because I wanted to hear more old kind of stuff. I wanted to hear the big when he didn't have a horn section. Remember, he treated that Oberheim, the OB-8 and the OBXA as the horn section. So mm-hmm. he would gliss up whang, and he would hit his chords yep. and he would hit these chords that because he couldn't afford and didn't have a horn section. So that was effectively his horn section. And then when he yep. got horn sections and then got too cute about it, near the end, he had an 11 piece horn section or something like that. Yep. He combined a six and a five piece and it was a mess. It was a nightmare. I yeah. didn't like this stuff. Um, doesn't mean that everyone doesn't, you know, and that's a subjective thing. It's not objective. But the only thing I, I'm objective about, I find, is my job is to just be truthful. Because people like to, and the more time goes by, is they like to paint a different picture of what things were like. And I don't think that serves Prince or the fans or his legacy what I don't think that's the right thing to do. I think just no. to be honest with the shortcomings, to be honest about the process um, is important because that lets us know that there's something in there to be learned. And Prince was a master at learning. Now, like a lot of the artists with whom I've worked, they have a lot to teach. I'm surprised that they just release records and go on tour. I'm yeah. surprised more artists, artists don't do master classes. I'm surprised that... Um, I don't name, name an artist, you know, uh, well, um, we could name artists, but the the thought that just came to me is, do you think it's a financial thing? Because so much of the financial remuneration has moved now to just perform live. Do you think that someone like Taylor Swift, who, you know, has just come out with another album now in the middle Mm -hmm. of re-recording all of our old material, do you think there's, there's, they're few and far between that people actually care about the the thing that it's almost like fast food isn't it do they care about the burger or that do they just want you in the establishment so that they can take your money off you yeah it that's a well it depends on what people have in the tank um prince generally would be uncomfortable with the idea i gave him in 2000 late 2001 or 2002 as we sat in takumi's office and he he was challenging me he was challenging me about Uh, buying a PA, whether or not we should buy a PA, our own sound gear. And I said, it's not a good idea. Talk to Journey, talk to, there's a bunch of bands that could just tell you it's not a good idea. You're going to lose your money on that. But um, he said, well, how could we make $1.5 million quickly, just you and me to pay for that PA? And I said, because it was actually $1.6 million. And I said, well, and I had to riff. This was my version of jazz, right? And I said, well, I would go into theaters 3,000 seat theaters or whatever I said, charge $200 a piece. You would have a grand piano, a keyboard, a bass, a guitar, and an acoustic. And you would talk and talk about your writing process and take questions from the fans and have a VH1 storytellers. I'm just making this up in front of him on the spot. And I said, that's 500 grand a show. 
we could do it in three weeks, maybe three, three weeks. We can make that money in three weeks. And of course, he famously said, as he left the room, he goes, you're a hundred grand short because it was $1.6 million. So, um, but, but the idea there, it's a cute story, but the real idea behind that is Prince could have sat down at a grand, a keyboard, a guitar, a bass, and an acoustic and yeah. had you enthralled and teach you something so that you as a fan, when you leave there, you're better than when you came in. Taylor Swift, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, could not do that. She could do oh. it with an acoustic, but she couldn't fill up two, three hours with it. Lots of musicians and ones that I've mixed couldn't sit there and tell you their process and tell you why they do this and basically give a live masterclass. And, yeah. and that's why, because there's no paycheck there for them because they can't do it. Um, yeah. A lot of artists are just riding the wave, riding the wave of popularity at the moment, right? Mm -hmm. It depends. You could have the best surfer in the, I know nothing about surfing. I'm about to go into dangerous territory here. You got the best surfer in the world. If they miss that wave and some novice gets it, that novice might end up looking like a genius, right? Mm -hmm. Or dying, it, it, right? You have to catch the wave. And a lot of these artists are just a product of the timing, right? It's not true art. It's a lot of bubble gum now. And I look back at artists. To me, artists are ones who can play, who can sing, who can yeah. emote and don't yeah. need to hide behind production, can play yeah. an acoustic show. Uh, those are things that are probably not, I don't know, I probably received criticism for that, but I'm okay. I'd stand, I'd stand with that. That, um, that we've lost those people. We've lost a lot of those. And Prince was certainly one who could do all the things himself. Yeah, I think that the talent is probably still there, but that they're not brought up in that environment anymore. Like nobody pay, plays the clubs to become famous anymore. You know, so they're not good point. sort of back yeah, good hardened. Point. You know, I think a lot of the 80s uh, acts were kind of sold short because mm -hmm. it was the start of lip syncing. But if you listen to all of them now who are still on some nostalgia tour, there's a lot of great voices in there that I would mm -hmm. argue, you know, because they work clubs, because they came up through, you know, quote unquote, the system before they had their, their 10 year overnight success, that it's it's that foundation that is kind of missing these days. But, sure. and, um, it's, yeah, and it's relating. It's relating to band members as well. It's it's having a proximal relationship with band members and being enveloped by sound. Prince always was, that's why he wanted monitors. He didn't want any of your monitors. I got him to use them in 2002 for one, tour, on yeah. one, one night alone. But yeah. after that, he gave me his two sets, just said, you keep them. I never want to see those things again. And because yeah. he, he liked being enveloped in moving yeah. air and yeah. he wanted the front of house mix, the, excuse me, the monitor mix to sound like the front of house mix. That's why late in his career, what he listened to in his wedges was my mix and not a monitor engineer's mix. They just had to mix the band. Prince yeah. wanted that experience of being out front on stage and artists do not operate that way nowadays. So an observation that I have about those in-ear monitors was he was perhaps at his vocal best when he had the IEMs in? I, I think you know, the, that's possible. Do you think that yes. led to that? Because he, he, he had absolute pitch, you know, ability um, to, to match what he was he was getting through the monitors. I, I think he did anyway. I mean, his, you know, I've 
somebody asked me a long time ago um, or years ago what his best instrument was. And I said keyboards and I got in some trouble for that. I got a lot of flack for that. But um, I would agree that guitar, he was um, he was without peer as far as what he how he played what he played. Right. But it was very simple and blues based, his guitar stuff. He, he wasn't doing any crazy stuff the way somebody like uh, Sweet, uh, who who did the sweet picking, Brian? Who was the guy who did the made that famous? Angvay Momstein. Yeah, or there was another guy who would who was the like the sweet pick first person. I think his name started with a P. I don't know. Anyway, some whoever it was, like Prince wasn't doing these crazy new innovative things on guitar. It was very blues based and yeah. and very based very much based on motifs, you know, musical motifs. Mm-hmm. But um, I do agree he was a phenomenal guitar player. I probably backed away a little from his keyboard prowess. I think he learned a lot from Lisa Coleman and and others, but especially Lisa. But his vocal was his greatest instrument for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Susan, I watched your interview with Susan. She said his his ideas were his greatest instrument. I disagree with that. I think he had great ideas. I also think he had a, a load of crappy ideas as well. Yeah. Um, but his voice, he could be near a monitor with a terrible mix in it. He could be away from monitors. He could be down a ramp down the side of the stage. He still sang in time and in pitch. Um, he was, <clears throat> I often thought if he, if he signed a deal with the devil that had April 21st, 2016 written on it somewhere at the end, that that deal would have been about having a perfect voice and having mm. full control and full command of that instrument from the very first part of his life to the very last show of his life. He never lost yeah. a thing in his vocal. Just no, he unbelievable, didn't. I, stunning. I listened to the Atlanta show you know, I mean, we all know that bootlegs are out there, so I'm not going to mm. pretend that they're not. And mm. I, I listened to it last week and I just thought, I mean, it is, his vocal is absolutely flawless. Yeah. And within a week, the whole world changes. Yeah, and it's, he, he, um... it's astonishing that, you know, he kept, I, I mean, it's a question that I don't expect you to be able to answer, but mm. I often look now at these demos that are being released on, on the posthumous, uh, you know, estate albums that are coming out. And he's singing non-falsetto in 1979 with just the same ability that he always had. But for some reason, the first three, three and a half albums, it's falsetto only. And I, I would, you know, he's never going to tell us, even if he was still alive. But right. it would be a question that I'd have is why? Why would you shy away from being, you know, a full range singer for the um, first few albums? I can answer. I can, I can hazard a guess at this. <clears throat> when Please. he started he cut a lot of those first three records and he played live quite a bit, but not on the scale and the reach and the size of venues that he had played before. And he didn't have engineers that could get that live falsetto up above the mix so that it could be heard. And there's nothing, there's nothing that frustrated Prince more than not being able to hear his falsetto live. It was always in the back of my mind when kiss would come up. Um, when you were mine, there's certain songs that still could trigger me out of sleep, you know, shake me out of sleep, just thinking they were next on the set list because I had notes that said plus seven dB, plus seven dB. Like I always used to turn everything, his falsetto up seven dB. So you could hear it. Um, There's nothing like the feeling of you're on stage, you're singing falsetto and you're getting run over in a venue by a band and no one can hear you singing that. I'm sure that put a little, I'm sure that's part of it. 
Prince would say I'm wrong and he would say that wasn't it. But I can tell you that instinctively and as an engineer who had to deal with what has been given me, um, that that could have informed him. And it could have been just that he was getting out of that male-female thing as well. Yeah, the androgyny right? was a big thing. Sure, sure. And you get up yeah. to controversy and after controversy things. Mm -hmm. He opened up and he opened a lot of the bottom end of his vocal up. And yeah. um, uh, we could dedicate a whole show to that about the vocal mm -hmm. and how he, how he moved in his career. And we could make charts of where he sang in what octave on what songs. Yeah, Daddy yeah. Pop, F sharp two or something like, sounds like an F2 in my mind, maybe F2. But, uh, it's, you know, he went from Daddy Pop to whatever his highest, you know, thing is. Yeah. And, and that's a great range to move in. But, and if anybody uh, of anyone, Prince had um, great, so such great uh, presence on the mic that he would know to move in and when to back off and when yeah. to give an, oh, you know, back here. Yeah. And he just, he knew he was totally cognizant, always aware of, of his proximal effect to the microphone as well. So yeah. we work, we work together in that way because I, I always wanted to make sure his, 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 not only his vocal, but his falsetto was heard loud and clear. So Scotty, I, I have a lot of technical questions I want to ask you, but before mm -hmm. we get into that, there's the mandatory questions we have to ask or we'll be crucified if we don't ask, but um, uh, tell me about your first actual in-person meeting of Prince. What was that like? What was your first impressions of it? Uh, I first saw him at the fine line. I sort of went up a stairway accidentally. I wasn't supposed to. And Prince and Gilbert and one other bodyguard kind of spun around and looked at me. And I, you know, when you get that first moment you see him, it's, he had some purple and white suit on. And, you know, it was like, it, it's kind of locked in my brain. And um, I just kind of backed down the stairs and uh, met him shortly after that out at a uh, rehearsal at Paisley Park that Michael Bland, of which Michael Bland was a part. And I was Michael's drum tech at that time. So Michael said, look, man, I'm going to bring you in on the Prince gig. You're going to go on tour. Mike, Michael sort of, he's a great spirit. And he just sort of manifested that to come true. And so I started showing up at rehearsals and I was always sitting behind Michael to his right, always. And Michael never had, to, I told Michael, you never have to wonder if I'm here. I will always be here. And Michael was so big, he would break stuff and just kind of look. And I'd already be throwing another cymbal up or changing a drum out or whatever. Um, and Prince started to see that sort of work ethic. So he started to talk to me. Prince was, and it was particularly one day where he was playing Michael's kit and he got off and he said something like, I don't, you know, I don't hit him like he does, do I? And I said, and he goes, truth counts. And I said, no, man, you don't like he does. Um, cause he just simply didn't hit, you know, Prince was sort of hit the drum. He didn't hit through the drums. Michael always sort of hit through the right. drums and, um, and, uh, but that was, I remember that being sort of the first back and forth. And then I just became his, probably his favorite tech, his favorite and most trusted tech, because he knew that I knew Michael's gig, even though I didn't know how to drum, I couldn't air drum the parts. I knew the different parts of the songs. I knew when the pyro was supposed to happen. The pyro guy couldn't uh, put an explosion in, in sign of the times at the right point. So I had, he's like, Scotty, can you go help him? Yep. And I was like, can I turn the key? And the guy was like, yeah don't turn it until i was like i know i know boom you know and set off the explosions in the truss and yeah. prince was like was that you tonight i said yeah and he's like cool you keep doing that so i was sort of his go-to guy to solve the musical aspects of the technical position and then once that pyro guy knew when it was then i could leave and go back to things so he just liked people who we got along because he knew i was invested and he could see i was really into it 
Mm-hmm. And he just wants people, he doesn't want to look at people who aren't into it. He just doesn't want yeah. them around. So I was so always me, allowed to stay in rehearsals. Yes, sir. Yeah. Let me take you back just to, to, to flesh that out. So did you know Michael before uh, as on a sort of a, a friendly basis? Because he's only, what, 19 years old at this point, right? I would imagine. Yeah. He had, he had done, we had met when Michael was doing the new tour and uh, Michael hired me away from this reggae band asking me, Hey man, do you know how to set up drums? And I said, no, I'm sorry. I, I don't. And he said, perfect. Like, I don't want somebody who knows how to, I don't want some, I will teach you what I like. And again, Michael manifested. He was like, if I make this guy know what I like, it'll become what he likes. And then he'll be setting up for himself. So Michael Bland, I have Michael to thank for, um, I guess, attitudinally how I, is that a word? I think it is now. Attitudinally, (laughs) how I approach, um, how I approach, uh, Michael set me up for success with Prince because he taught me not to be afraid. Go ahead, set it up, man. What do you want to change? Change what you want. Cool. And I said, I think you're splash to be here. That way, when you're doing that fill in this song, it's cool, cool. And Michael supported me and pushed me forward into, and you know thrust me forward into into my mixing career just by his attitude so again nail that down for me is is this michael's already been recruited by prince or he's still yes. playing in a combo or is it during that time where prince is he, hi- he he hired me to set up his drums for sunday and monday nights at bunkers and then wednesday night at the fine line and Prince would okay. come to bunkers on the fine, especially the fine line. Prince would show up at the fine line all the time. So Michael, I think in his way was already getting me ingrained, getting me used to being around Prince. And then it yeah. was natural where he fired his old tech and brought me in and I just started showing up and um, it, he laid the groundwork um, through already working with Prince that Prince would be, would notice Michael and I were familiar with one another and had a good relationship. And Michael sort of handed that relationship off, broke it in half and gave half to Prince. So Prince and I already had a good working relationship. And I was just relied upon to, if he didn't feel the mix was right, he would put me all the way out front with the engineer out there. And I would, and Michael's like, man, I'm cool. You go ahead. You're learning how to mix anyway, go out there. And would support me in a, in a show where I would just sit out front on a headset and say, no, turn that up. That's got to go down. That's, and that was a lot of faith that both Prince and Michael had in me. So more than I probably had in myself, but I grew into it. I grew into to realizing that I had the aptitude and the, and the talent to do that. So and I've, I've heard Michael, sorry, Brian, no, I've no, heard no. Michael talk around that time about Prince would sort of sit him down with albums, you know, do you know this mm. song? And he, he wouldn't. So he'd, he'd sort of do a little musicology course for him, you know, yeah. to teach him the kind of music that, that had gone into to making Prince the play that he was. Did he ever do anything with you where he's like, I, I need a certain sound? and has you know an album or an outtake from the vault or something uh to, no to demonstrate not not specifically uh <clears throat> he there was the only time i can think that even sort of sounds like that is when he had me checking the pa in japan in 2002 maybe it was where he said here and he hands me this record it was shania twain's new record um and he said make it sound like this. I want the, I want the sound to be like this. And, oh, wow. and 
and I think it was it possibly it, that was there was probably Mutt Lang, her husband at the time, right? Yeah, I think yeah. it might have been one of his productions. So who doesn't like a Mutt Lang production? I mean, they sound amazing. So, oh, yeah. um, so I I said, okay, cool, man. And I don't remember doing anything vastly different because they're just such different sounds. Um, but I think what he meant was make it sound compressed and fat and sort of have a big sound, big wall sound to it. That's the only thing I could think would be a difference between what I was doing at the time and what he wanted. And uh, I did try some things, especially in rehearsal. I got away with trying things like compressing the whole mix. And I found out that didn't, didn't really work well for the audience. Um, it probably worked okay for Prince, but I've always had this, um, I don't know. I, I, I've always been on the side of the audience in every way because they're the, I'm out there representing what they hear. So I'm trying to put out there what they would want. And the best way I can do that is to ask what they want or feel what they want. And people, when people come up and talk to me, I'd say, oh, okay, okay, cool. And I would just, I would listen and try and say, well, that that's reasonable or that's unreasonable, but just try and be the best um, arbiter of, uh, of, of a good, good faith to what the audience wanted to hear. So, and just try and represent that out front. And it started to work for me right away. Um, yeah. Because in 2000 or 2001, whatever that, one of those hit and run tours were, the, it was in the US, I think, um, uh, before One Night Alone. Hmm. He was doing hits and it was going off really successfully. And the board, the recordings were coming out great. And I was cutting them to CD, CDR. You know, I would cut them straight to CD and yeah. give them. And so sadly, uh, it's before I was carrying a DAT recorder with me they would cut off after 74 minutes. So I would quick change the, you know, the recording uh, CD, but there's some gaps, you know, depending on where, what song was playing. And so I, I looking back at that now in retrospect, it's sad, but um, no matter who's mixed uh, artists in the past, there was a certain point at which a cassette was going to run out a mini disc was going to run, run out. A CD was going to run out after 74 yeah. minutes. You know, you just had to deal with that until digital recording came into play. Yeah, exactly. I mean, some of those 80s B-sides, you know, they'd be a lot longer. We'd have a much longer America if oh, uh, yeah, the tape yeah. hadn't run out, you know? Yeah, yeah. that's right. So, uh, Scotty, were, uh, were the ribs at Rudolph's as good as what we've been hearing? Yeah, they were super good. I, I dated um, my my first serious girlfriend, lived about a half a mile from Rudolph's and, worked, and she worked at Rudolph's. And that was when I was working with Prince and she was a Prince fan. There was a lot going on there. And so she said she would come home to her apartment and bring me ribs every night that she would she's like you know i said yeah just yes i'll just take ribs whenever you want to bring them back it's a good woman and she would say she would say uh he was in tonight you know he was in tonight he, she would just say he was there and i knew who he, she was talking about and um uh yeah they were good it was the sauce i think it was the sauce there are plenty of ribs that are good and again that's a subjective thing but in general they were fall off the bone and the sauce was really good so okay yes yeah, there's, there's going to be a a whole load of people in the audience here thinking that can't be true because he was vegetarian or vegan or something. I don't but know. I've did he like eat them back people. then? If did he eat them back but, then? I don't know. Well, Susan heard, told us that she would have he would get someone to fly the ribs out mm, to him oh, in L.A. I, yeah, that, I, I mean that was, was mid '80s, wasn't it? But yeah. I've heard people. So mid '90s, he sort of goes vegetarian and vegan. You know, okay. under my eight years. But uh, I think it was Chance Howard told us at Celebration that. When they were doing the musicology tour, you would have mm -hmm. them stop the tour bus when they got to, oh, what's the name of the, the, um, oh, I, I knew I'd blank on this. It's it's one of these sort of Waffle House. 
Yeah. Roscoe's. So, uh, Waffle House, I think. It, it, it oh, was Waffle House. Chance, okay. Chance loved Waffle House. So he would go and get him uh, a chicken breast and a, a pecan waffle. Mm-hmm. And he said, I never saw the, the chicken getting thrown out the well, window, you know, so I think when, he was eating it. When, one of my favorite stories, and it's not mine to tell, but I'm going to tell it anyway, because he's not talking. There's a lovely guy named Takumi Suetsugu, who I know, Brian, yeah. you're familiar, you'll be familiar with because he was Prince's guitar tech, yeah. master guitar tech, just a master. And he, uh, for many, many years and ran, he was Prince's right hand man for a long time. Mm. And, and um, I should have checked with him whether I can tell the story or not, but it's funny. Um, there was a place called Baker Square pie place and and years and years ago it was called pop and fresh but when it was baker square there was one in eden prairie Hmm. and takumi let prince know he said listen i have to go to la to do something and so i'll be gone well of course the next night prince called takumi and said hey can you go get me a couple of pies Hmm. from baker square and takumi said dude i told you i'm in (laughs) i'm in los angeles and he goes well can you figure it out he said oh all right and he said you're going to have to go get him. He's like, that's cool. So Takumi hung up and he called Baker's Square and he said, listen, give me two chocolate silk pies or whatever he ordered. And he said, here's what's going to happen. In about 30 minutes, a black Jeep Cherokee with blacked out windows is going to pull up to the drive-through window. And the window is going to go down and you're going to see a little hand with a black leather glove reach out, put the pies in the hand. And then, <laughs> and then I'll, here's my credit card number. And sure enough, that's how it went down. Window goes down, two hands go out, <laughs> pies go in hand, window goes up, and Prince goes home. So um, Prince was willing so, to go out there. And uh, that's a great yeah. story. And not only did Prince sort of invent the iTunes model with the MPG Music Club, he also invented Deliveroo and Uber Eats. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. We're gonna give. He's the he's the Forrest Gump of all. Yeah, he'll end up yeah, being yeah. Forrest Gump after all this. He invented yeah. everything, right? Um, but he had great ideas. And, and like I said, I, I've said it before, I've been critical of a lot of his ideas in the past. Um, Susan liked his ideas. Yes, he had good ideas. He also had a lot of crappy ones. But his yeah. that 10th that out of that, you know, nine out of 10 were sort of just like, what? What are you doing? Like, what is that's not going to work? Or that's hmm. what do you mean rent 14, you know, Persian rugs at two in the morning? Right. And but you they did it. People found out a way yeah. to do it. And that's a bad idea for a video that we shoot in the middle of the night that's never going to be seen, right? Stuff like that. Bad ideas. A bad use of personnel, right? And energy. That 10th idea of his was always a winner. And so you sort of had to deal with the, you know, even baseball Hall of Fame players failed seven out of 10 times at the plate and they get in the Hall of Fame. So I I think Prince's, you know, can have a bunch of bad ideas and, and still that, that, 10th out of 10, you know, was the magic one yeah. that, that, uh, that did well, like putting the record in the ticket price, you know, that was yeah. genius. Yeah. Genius. So I've got two thoughts and I'll, I'll say them before I lose them. Uh, the first one was, you said that people wanted to lock him in a room with a, a Lynn and an O behind, but there you have him in 2009 doing the Minneapolis yeah. uh, album, which is exactly that, you know, yeah. but he's, he's had six or seven years on the road and in good money doing the hits. So he was, yeah. he was always that contradictory nature. Was of he like course. that in everyday life? Sure. I mean, he's a Gemini and I don't know if you believe in that stuff. I don't, I'm not sure. I think if there is anything to it, I am a t- prototypical Virgo. Everything's always arranged and neat and in its place and, and uh, almost to a fault. And that's a Virgo trait. Sure. He had the Gemini thing uh, unquestionably, but he was also at his whim. You know, he just, he had ideas and he 
wanted to do things and he wanted them when he wanted them and people gave them to him when he wanted them. So he, when you start getting that, you know, yeah. Adele can order a, a chocolate shake in the middle of the desert at 2 a.m. and somebody's going to show up with it in an hour. That's just how it works for them. They're different. Um, I'm not saying they should be because again, it's a critical uh, misuse of, of resource. When you had us there at a rehearsal for 12 hours, you know, we, we did a 10 hour rehearsal or an eight hour rehearsal and then we might play later. So I just went to dinner at Hulan's, came back and then sat for another three or four hours at my desk my console. And then somebody go, why are you here? Like, he's not coming into play. And I go, I wish you guys would let me know. I wish he would have on the way out said, we're done for the night. Right. Yeah. That's a, he, he wasn't very good at managing people that just was yeah. not in his purview. He didn't, he didn't, I don't, I would have a full on smackdown with someone uh, verbally we'll say, who said he was good at managing people. He just wasn't, he was, he, he wasn't good at it. It wasn't something he did well um, because he didn't. So he, he, what he got out of people, they felt like was their best and their most when really it was just a lot of that comes at the end of, of the set of repetitions, you know, your eighth, ninth, 10th repetition in weightlifting. That's where all your gain is made. We were always pushed to do 24, 48 hour, 96 hour sessions like Susan was with Prince. That's where you feel like your best work is because you're at the end, you know, of the thing, but really your best running is done early in the marathon. Not when you cross the finish line. It's just that we think it is because that's where he got the results, but yeah. did, did just you, my two cents. No, no. And so Scotty, uh, on that note, I learned very quickly. I, you know, I'd be watching doing these reaction videos to Prince and I could see like the, the choreography, the, the movement on stage. I could tell very quickly that he, he demanded a lot of the people that were around him. Mm -hmm. uh, we know from talking to Susan, you know, you're, you're at his beck and call 24 seven. Was there ever a point that started to wear on you? Um, I was less so at, uh, on 24 seven because I knew he would, um, wasn't, couldn't always play live because there wasn't an audience. Yeah, well, that we, sense, we were, yeah. we were sort of in a perpetual, um, we were in a perpetual rehearsal, you know, for years, like out of the, I mixed him 2000 on and off from 2000 to right before he died in 2016. I left, I walked out in, in Auckland, New Zealand, uh, before he went to Perth and then back to the U S shows. Um, in that time, um, I knew what, when he wouldn't be playing especially on tour tour got very easy for me because that's when I just knew I had to do the sound check, the show and an after show, but it was rehearsing in Minneapolis and living there knowing I could be called at any time to get out of bed and go out there. That yeah. was tough. And for people like Susan, especially like Peggy and I don't know Peggy, I should call her Miss McCreary, but um, for his engineers and, and David C and, and even Tom Tucker and to that degree and, and Femi and, and a lot, Ian, a lot of, a lot of his engineers and Dave Hampton as well. When you worked in the studio, you were always, you always had to be availed because his ideas would come at, at odd times, yeah. as you heard in the Susan interview. Um, but he couldn't simply couldn't be that way live because we actually tore the gear down and moved it to another city. So I knew I had pockets of time. I knew typically my bus ride would be uninterrupted, although that wasn't true. Several times he'd they pull the buses over and he'd want me to go up to his bus and go on and listen to the show and watch the show back. Wow. And it sounds like this great thing. Fans would be like, Oh my God, I would love to do that. But it, it was a bother for me because I know I wouldn't have any sleep and then have to do, you know, watch a three hour show 
or watch an after show that they happen to record on video and then have to figure out how we're going to pull the buses over and then get on my bus and go back to sleep and only get an hour of sleep before I had to load in again. So um, it, 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 it was much tougher in the studio than it was on them, on those folks than it was on his live sound engineer. Okay. Do you think he ever switched off? Because it, yeah. everything to me, okay. Uh, I, I won't even yeah. go any further. Could you yeah, elaborate? He did, he did, he did. And because he would say the word faded, uh, fading or faded. I'm, I'm, I'm fading. So we'll talk about this tomorrow or I'm faded. So I, we'll talk about this tomorrow. That was, that was my key. And maybe he just got better at it over time. Maybe he just got his self-care, uh, although not perfect, clearly. Um, I think his self-care, probably he got more aware of his need to sleep and maybe what we were doing the next day wasn't pressing. It was just a rehearsal or something. So, so it wasn't quite as, so he would just say, oh, I'm, I'm fading. I'll, we'll talk about that tomorrow. And I said, cool. Okay. Cause I would have my note, you know, I always had a notebook next to him. I do right now. I, and I always have a notebook and pencil next to a pen next to when I'm dealing with an artist, because something they they're, they're, they're who they are for a reason. And I don't put any of them above any of the other ones, you know, it could be uh, tricky. Who's a UK artist who's who would be yeah. smoking blunts all day, but he might say something pretty profound that I want to write down yeah. about the show or what he wanted to do. And then you'd have Prince on the other end or Wang Lihong, you know, these artists mm -hmm. that I've worked with now in Asia who, who are all their poop is their poop is always in a group, right? They, mm -hmm. there, there are lists like crazy in Asia where I work now, mostly in China and tai Taiwan. And yeah. that is, um, but I always figure somebody at any time could, could have something important to say. So I'd always be there for them to, to do that. But oftentimes he would just kind of give up and he would know that it was best done the next day. Mm -hmm. so things were better done if, if we put all of the musical artists aside what's your educational background because within five minutes of speaking to you i know you're a highly educated guy uh very very erudite it was were you destined to the, the sort of universities and that kind of thing and then music stole you away or what's, what's uh, your background in that sense no I, I the i'm probably um I think, candidly speaking, I think I'm well-spoken and I think there's a difference between high, clearly there, there has to be a difference between being highly educated and well-spoken. And I know how to get my point across and I know how to, the same way an artist knows how to write a good song, a good, um, what would you call it? Just um, an arrangement of something like you'd arrange your thoughts. I can speak with people and know how to start it and know how to bring it home and know what the time constraints are on a podcast and know how to make an answer a little bit shorter or a little longer as we need. I'm just aware of that. I have, I have, I would say I have a high awareness quotient, the AQ. Yep. Um, I, I went to some college, I went to film school actually, and okay. never, never got my degree in filmmaking. I felt like it's, I sort of got pulled away by the industry. If anything, I went to, they don't give a, they don't give a certificate for it um, or a degree, but I went to Paisley Park as a university because I went from the ages that I would have been in university. I went, I was at Paisley Park, especially basically 90 through 95. I was around in and around Paisley Park all the time. And that's where I learned all the principles about it. Now, how I apply it, how I make that applicable with my personality, how I marry the two is just because I think things through and I'm pretty well, um, 
I, I have a high degree of, of um, coordination and things are sort of laid out and I know how artists speak. I can speak that language. It's one thing to be a great musician and not know how to relate to people, right? It's yeah. another to be, or, or maybe a really skilled technician, but they just don't know how to talk to artists or they're not very musical, but they're great yeah. at technical stuff. Yeah. But I think I have a pretty, if I'm to be very honest and candid about it, I have a great balance of both the musical aspects of how things should go and how they should feel and what they should sound like. <clears throat> the technical is how to get things that I need out of buttons and, and knobs to make them sound natural and invisible, almost like that it doesn't exist. There's an art to that, making the technical sort of transparent. And then the third part of that is the relational. And that's the thing at which I shine the most is being able to talk with an artist, being really locked in with them, paying attention to them, listening to what they have to say and hearing them say they want, Lady Gaga said, I want to sound like a lavender knife. I use that example, but that's a great example. That's taking the artistry of someone's mind and saying, I think I know what you mean. I'm not oh. being full of shit. I actually think I know what you mean and then do this thing. And then they go, that's what I mean. And that translation of artistry into actual um, something that's quantifiable and, and doable is a, is a big deal. I think well, also, when you spoke about, uh, sorry, when you spoke about one of the mixes earlier, obviously sound does face the listener mm -hmm. and there is a, a, an element of a 3d uh, soundscape that is going on in that situation. Do you have like a fourth dimension that you're, you're thinking of? Are you a visual person? I suppose. Yeah, with for, for sure. In your mind. Okay. For sure. And, and that's, uh, that's very astute of you to pick that up because I consider myself very visual. And I think that lends itself toward me being a good audio engineer and me being there for audiences to really hear and feel things because um, studio engineering is one thing. You just have to mix it. People just listen to it. Um, I have to mix it and I have to have the visualization of if a musician runs down next to the singer and puts their back against the singer and starts playing bass, mm -hmm. I have to turn the bass up. Because if yeah. you don't hear the bass go up, something's wrong. It doesn't, it, yeah. it's not, it starts to trick the mind. The mind starts going, wait, what? And also a lot of times in arenas or um, uh, stadiums, I watch the screen mostly when I mix. I know where my fingers are and I watch the screen and then I mix to the screen. So if they showed Mike Scott playing for a second, mm -hmm. I'll turn him up just for a second because that, and, and Prince even noticed that because he would get the show uh, DVDs back on musicology and say, how are the instruments turning up when they're on the screen? Is that a, your is that your your console? Is that your soundboard oh, okay. or is that you? And I said, no, it's me. I said, if you're an audience member, you want to see what you you want to hear what you see. Yeah. And so I'm doing that. And he's like, cool. You know, hmm. keep going with that. Like keep doing that. So I knew it was obviously yeah. working. I'm just very visual, but I have to place things visually in a dimension. If you see background singers over on stage right, which would be audience left. It's not yeah. that I'm going to pan all three of those singers over to the left side. That's not fair to the right side. There is a balance that has to be struck. But so I'm I will, gonna, and I I'm going to sorry yeah. I'm going to take no, no, two no, dots no. and and try and join them, and I might be completely off to do so. Mm. But Roy Bennett, uh, who did the lighting for for Prince for many many years, he has is it synesthesia where you can see colors? Yes, you can. Do well, you, you can you can hear. You see a color when you hear something. Yes. Yeah. So do you think it was uh, something that 
perhaps was was unspoken in the people who work for him on the creative side and, and outside of purely the musicians that there's there's an element of this visual that keeps cropping up you know i i too often and i've joked with roy about it i fawn over roy a little too much but i have a man crush on him in this way i have if anyone wonders who the most talented person prince ever worked with in his career is hmm. it's head and shoulders roy bennett there is a I large agree. gap between the next person and i don't know who that next person is hmm. um roy if he i didn't know he was synesthetic um that that would make sense to me it's also could be a curse if you ask roy it, it's probably a curse as well because it's like having perfect pitch if your band all tunes to the violin or the guitar player sets the tuning for everyone yeah and and they start playing it say it's a power trio and the singer would start going and i wanna know, and they're going holy crap something's wrong because they're on and the band is a yeah. little off so yeah. that can be a curse as much as a blessing but what roy what roy did with prince in his career is nothing short of phenomenal because Roy could imbibe Prince's words the same way I do in an audio, uh, audio sense. Roy did in a visual sense. Roy <clears throat> knew what each color of each song should be. He felt it and he had the full, as far as I'm concerned, had full trust. And the, the couple of times that Prince and I talked about, he would refer to Roy. Yeah. Um, it was always about knowing the right thing to do, having the, the sense of the exact right thing to do. Like this is the right thing. And more than me, Roy has to deals and on a regular basis deals with artists, meaning, meaning uh, uh, Gaga, um, Trent Reznor, um, uh, Paul McCartney, all these artists, these he, Roy does all the biggest acts in the world. And Roy has to listen to them describe a show and then not only come up with a look or a feel or a design for the show, but he has to write a story oftentimes about what that why why Ramstein is going to where it starts and where it's going to finish and he writes a story in and that is very very high that is high function right there yeah. that is on the top level and um i could only aspire to be regarded the way roy is by a number of us that say he was the single most influential certainly silent part of prince's career everything from the lighting and purple rain concert scenes to how he did Trent Reznor and how he worked with Rammstein and all these huge artists that Roy works with whom he works. He, he makes them comfortable and makes them know that this is right. And this is your head in the right direction. And if it's not, then we'll correct course, correct you. And I think in a sense I have, I used to think I used to hear C major and C blue. <clears throat> that mm -hmm. is synesthesia. Mm -hmm. I could be fooled though, because it could be in B flat. And I would go, oh, that that's C, correct? And they'd say, no, it's B flat. Oh, okay, close. So mm -hmm. I, I have very good relative pitch, not not perfect pitch. Yeah. And kind of the same way with colors for me. Yeah. Same guy. So, yeah. You know, you you had mentioned about education, and I want to point out this. My impressions of Scotty with this too is <clears throat> when you get that real life education of like having to learn a lot of things quickly, uh, on the fly, uh, as you go, and also working for probably one of the like a huge name and, and, and a very demanding uh, person too. That's an education itself. I, what I'm trying to say is I don't think a lot of people could have done what Scotty did. Like the, the pressure would have probably got a lot of guys to crack. Well, certainly it, 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 it took its toll on a lot of engineers because at, at one point we counted 
I counted, maybe with Takumi, somebody, and I counted, we knew all the names of the engineers, the monitor engineers yeah. that were there when I was mixing front of house. And it was over, over 30. It was in yeah. the low 30, maybe 32, 33. And um, that didn't mean that I'm better than them. It just yeah. meant, it just meant that I knew what Prince wanted and I knew how to get there. We had some really talented uh, monitor engineers that Prince had and front of house engineers. Yeah. Um, and it, it's at, at a certain point, Prince just couldn't turn around and rely on them with a knowing nod, like, I got you, man. I know what you're going to want to do, yeah. especially at the after shows. That's mm. where he did his best guitar playing. That's where he did most of his best performing. We're at these after shows. And that's where I got most fearless and would usually have a, a whiskey in me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, you which know, again, I... which again, don't discount the, don't discount the role of, I've said it many times, but I wanted to get out there for, for your, your viewers and listeners. No one should ever underestimate the importance of chemical addiction and dependency and reliance in the world of art. It's, mm. We wouldn't have the art we had today without that. And I think yeah. some of the times when we go to after shows and Prince would have a glass of wine before the after show uh, or, and the band would you know, have a drink and they would sneak a drink or take you know, before, and I would have drinks out at front of house even though even though i knew i was recording on on dat and that show probably would be released someday and they all probably will um sometimes that gave me ideas and different attitudes that i wouldn't have had had i been playing it fully straight so i think it's important to acknowledge that at least in a conversation absolutely and i think it goes back to a point that you made that you know the, the world seems to play it safe across the board at the moment yeah. where anything that is not the the uh, common voice is somehow incorrect and right, of course right. that's not the truth you know we're, we're we've always been gray the world has always been gray yeah yes. and to, to say anything is black and white is wrong but there's there's a million avenues i want to kind of take you here but um can i reach back to one night alone sure. that that sort of that change where suddenly the musicianship is is right up front the the recordings that we've got of them are spectacular did you know that they were going to be did you treat everything as if he might release this because it's prince he's kind of quirky like that or... no um not at all i can answer that right away not at all i didn't i didn't know that well there are things i would have changed about one night alone live <clears throat> the box set for sure um i didn't like the horn sounds on there. I didn't, I didn't like the instrumentation of having two altos and a trombone. I think that was um, some of the, when you had Eric Leeds, when you had, when you widen the section out a little bit um, and Yanni, uh, 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 Atlanta Bliss with Eric. Uh, no, not, not oh. Eric. Um, uh, who am I thinking of? Um, there was Mike, Mike, uh, there was Mr. Bibbles. That was uh, Mike, so um, the Hornheads, Mike Nelson, and no, not Mike Nelson. It was it was different. We had a rotating, um, we had a rotating. Uh, in two thousand two, we had a bunch of different. Oh, Naji, Naji, Naji yep. was there. Um, you had Mike. Uh, I forgot Mike's last name. Um, who the guy did who the long the, notes? Mike yeah, Phillips. Mike Phillips, and you had yeah. Maceo, and you had Eric Leeds, and Candy Dolphin. Candy, and, yeah. and yeah, and I think some of those. I think uh, it was a. It was just a matter of Greg having to use whatever instrumentation was on that show. And he'd have to sort of arrange for that. But I, um, 
I think the horns were used inappropriately and I didn't think that it was always the best thing to have them on all those songs. Um, and I tried to sort of sheepdog Prince into not using the horns on some stuff, like DMSR. DMSR should never have horns on it, ever. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a yeah. criminal. He should have been locked up for a day. Think that one through, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Because you don't need, ooh, bam, all right. You don't need to do that. You have the Oberheim. You have the keyboard to do that. It's more authentic and it and it it's evocative of a more analog sound. When you get the glass glossy horns on that and um, the glissandos down and things like that, it just didn't work for me. There are a lot of arrangement stuff that you know that that Prince did that I just think didn't serve the music well, and I think he got lazy and just got used to it. Oh, they're already up right. there. Just let them do this song too. Um, but in the one night alone, because the inter instrumentation took front and center, um, uh, I, it was an interesting time. I think he could have utilized keyboards a little bit better. Um, Renato had a lot lumped on his shoulders trying to learn all the classic stuff and then trying to be a jazz pianist. And yeah. then when you get Renato, you get sort of that creative meandering, with, which is like whistles and congas and all sorts of schmutz yeah. up top that, that I think were were probably not didn't suit Prince well. It, it it didn't it didn't wear well on his show. But I think Prince was a little bored and didn't 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 check Renato on some of that stuff. And and um, but certainly uh, as soloists, I think Maceo and, and Candy and Greg were fine. Uh, but I don't think they were used well together as a section by Prince. And um, that that could be disputed. But I think any high functioning musical um, uh, critic would, would say the same thing, but you just, he, yeah. it was an exploratory period during the, yes. during 2002. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily uh, agree a hundred percent with that take, but that's what makes us Prince fans. I mean, it, I've never met anyone. It's almost like family, isn't it? You know, we can fight and, you know, pull hair yeah. and there'll be blood, but you know, yeah. at the end of the day, we'll, we're all still joined. Um, yeah. The thing for me was just that it was the first official live release. Yeah. Official in the sense that, you know, you had to be part of the club and, you know, probably some people, hundreds of the people that should have heard it. Actually some, heard people, it. some people say that he did that just to get those 10 albums out. He thought they mm. could be released and start releasing them and they could be considered full releases so that he was getting that 10 album record deal done. <clears throat> That's not how I ever heard it explained to me, even by Prince. He, he wanted to reward the fans that were there for him. And he loved, that's why he loved playing live and was so good at it. He had an, an, an immediacy with the fans. He was immediately next to them. No, no mix engineers, no agents, no managers, no record companies. Nobody was in the way. He was in a room. You know, if anything, I was probably looked at as being in the way of the sound. You know, he didn't want anyone between he and the, and the fans. He loved the fans. Yeah. Um, he was still kind of cryptic and austere and sort of, you know, like mysterious with them, but he did love his fans. He always wanted the fan experience to be at the top of the, the food chain. And <clears throat> I didn't know clearly that those were going to be released until Lynn, his assistant called me one day. We were between uh, breaks on the tour. We had a little time, like 10 days off or something, a small amount of time off at home. And she called and said, he'd like you to come out and um, meet him in studio a, he wants to play something for you. So I drove out there and just pushed the door open, the two heavy doors into A. And um, and he had a Jamba Juice and he was listening to the live mixes. I could tell it was a live show, but they were already on CD. So I knew at least they had to go from DAT to CD and then be track marked 
because he kept hitting yep. forward and he would listen to tw you know 24 bars of that song and then go forward to the next one so i thought something's going on and i know it's my mix i could recognize it right away and he we listened to a bunch of he didn't even hug me or say hi he just kind of nodded and kept playing it loud he was kind of proud he was showing off yeah. And we listened for, oh, I don't know, several minutes for sure. And then he turned it down. And he said, sounds good, right? And I said, yeah, it sounds great. And he said, I'm going to release this as a record. Well, had I known that, I probably, I don't know if I would have done much differently because I always tried to treat it like a, a studio anyway, right? I tried to treat it like a like I was making a record anyway. But um, I'm glad I didn't have that in my mind. Otherwise, I would have been, now I knew the Live from Las Vegas DVD was going to be released before we did the show. And I asked him, do you want, I mean, uh, AEG Concerts West asked him, do you want a mobile truck to come in and record? Right. And he said, no, Scotty's mix will be fine. And they were mm -hmm. like, uh, but you know, thinking if I made a mistake or something and they asked me, and I was like, no, man, that's cool. It's going to be fine. And so I knew that as I was mixing that show, I was aware, you can see me in some of the shots I'm bopping around and mm -hmm. dancing around knowing that that had to be live any mistake any vocal that i had muted accidentally was gonna that was it that's all we could do yeah. and um and but i wasn't afraid of that it, it, it it's um some sometimes i was aware oftentimes i wasn't i hope a lot of these after shows get released because i think the fans would really see a different side of prince i think more yes. than anything he ever did in the studio respectfully hmm. speaking the, the after show is way more interesting he let yeah. his hair down yeah. proverbially and, and, and the band was, they were loose. They were loose. You could play fast and loose and yeah. we would do a half hour one or a three hour, two, two, three hour one, like in Australia. So they're, yeah. they're all out there. They're all at Iron Mountain and, and somebody's going to decide that yep. now that the family has control, they can decide that. But yes, um, I always, no matter what artists I'm mixing, I always listen back and say, could this be released as a record? You know, since that happened to me in the early 2000s, that was early in my career too. Yeah. So um i i thought well this this is this sounds like a record that's in the mix that guitar is that solo goes up 40b you know where it should and you know i'm, I'm always thinking about the fan experience about that um and do you have per personal favorites from the, the the after shows that you you often think back to oh well there were so many and they sort of all conglomerated in my mind into one after show um <clears throat> they had there was one particular one that i remember really well um at the Fillmore and okay. it's, it's a, and some fan, I'm not going to say who it is, but some fan sent me an email <clears throat> that ended up in my junk, rightfully so probably ended up in my junk box. <laughs> and you know, once in a while you go over to your Mac and you go down the left. Oh, oh no, that's for my bank, you know, or, Oh, that, Oh, that's wrong. And I saw this one and this guy said, here's a gift for you. Pretty sure you don't have it. And so I clicked on it and it was the Fillmore show from a stereo microphone just in the room somewhere or obviously somebody had a little thing on there yeah. somewhere. Yeah. And because it does sound stereo, it sounds like it was in front of the PA and it wasn't through the board because you can hear, yeah, all right. You know, you can hear people right next to it, but it sounds phenomenal. And it was so fun to listen to that show. And I got such a kick out of listening to it because I don't collect his bootlegs. I'm not as big a Prince fan as most of his fans are. And that's not to be, I love his music. I have a very deep connection to the songs that, that I have a connection to which I have a connection, but there are a ton of songs that you could mention that I've never even heard or know. Uh, I guess I've listened to everything once or twice. Right. But, um, 
but I've, I've had to, through all this, I've had to actually mix a ton of other artists too. So I had a lot of, a lot of music going through my head and through my ears and from my fingers in my career and had to felt, feel like I've um, rightfully paid particular, the same amount of attention to Tegan and Sarah as I did to Prince, right? Yeah. I mean, Brian knows who they are, the, the Canadian twin sisters. I spent just as much concerted effort on making their show great as I did Prince's. Yeah. And I think just holding that, holding that level of excellence that I expect out of myself, I guess, is I think part of the ends up being the part of the building block of what has made me successful for a long time at a thing that I really never even chose. Yeah. It just sort of found me. Um, before I get going with the technical questions about the mixing and everything, uh, I got to ask this question for the viewers. Uh, your first impressions of Lady Gaga, like when you first met her, how did that go? That type of stuff. She was, she's a super creative force. Um, she is an artist, every bit an artist. <clears throat> just in her um, constitution, not when she's dressed up in crazy outfits and stuff. She's an incredible singer. Um, she reminds me of, I think she'd be okay with this, uh, Madonna in her work ethic, just endless work ethic. And now she's getting older, but her dancers are staying young, right? You keep hiring the 22-year-old dancers. Yeah. And now you're 40 or whatever. She still works as hard, I imagine. I haven't worked with her in a long time. I imagine she still works as hard as she does as she did okay. before. And um, so she's super creative, um, almost hyper creative, I'd say on that level and wildly talented, great vocalist, great vocalist. Yeah. And, and fearless, yeah, I saw another, her, another fearless performer as well. Yeah. I saw her at uh, Wembley stadium for mm -hmm. opening for take that who had, had sort of just come back after, you know, 10 years away. Um, so 80,000 people in a, in yeah. a stadium it was, you know, a game changer for me, but she was the, the warm up artist and she'd only had poker face out. Mm. And I remember her coming on with a burst stage, a piano. And I think there'd been some trouble backstage that she wanted more production, but I think the band were a little bit worried that they might get uh, usurped. So just to see her with that, that sort of stripped back approach, but yeah. able to, to, pull everybody in and hold them in their in her hand i remember yes. saying to the people around me she's going to be absolutely huge and they were like well yeah. she already is P poker faces everywhere i was like no career wise she's she's a long term this isn't a, yeah. a flash in the plan, plan by mm -hmm. any means and that you know i think uh you get that sense of artists and being a prince fan you kind of you get to recognize it because you've got this yardstick that's right where do they that's where right. do people measure up you know? yeah prince is a good yardstick against uh, which artists can measure themselves. Can you, first of all, can you be locked in a studio and the next morning have three songs done fully? Well, Michael couldn't do that. Gaga couldn't do that. You know, there are not a lot of people could do that. Uh, yeah. Lee Hom, uh, artist I work with, uh, an American Taiwanese artist, Lee Hom Wong, he yeah. could because he records everything himself, plays everything himself, releases it, owns his masters. He, Lee Hom is in a lot of ways what Prince wanted to be. You know, full control yeah. of his career and 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 recording and writing and mastering and all of that. Um, but very few artists are like that, where they are that in control of things. Then you just move down the line. But Gaga yeah. is certainly a five. I guess you'd call her a five-tool player in baseball, right? She's mm -hmm. um, she she acts, she sings super well. She has movement. She can play. 
guitar and keyboard. Like she's got all these, uh, all this facility. She can do it all herself. Yeah. And she works just as hard when there was only um, Ian, Mikey and Asiel, her three lovely dancers. When it was just the three dancers and a, and a, and a piano full of bubbles and she had the bubble dress and we were touring like on this tiny, tiny, small thing. And DJ Space Cowboy was her DJ playing the songs and she was singing. It was literally a DJ and her when I started. And um, and she still, you could take cut and paste her performance and put it on a giant stage with 20 dancers. And she worked just as hard as she did with when she's with 20 dancers. And that says yeah. a lot about her epic. Yeah. Just touching on Lee Holm though. Do you, so obviously you, you have this amazing uh, resume that I would imagine people are coming to you because you've worked for Prince. Would I be right in, in suggesting sure. that? That yes. that's how you know a lot of these employment opportunities come up. So is that accidental that he's come to you and has a guy who owns his masters, does his own recordings? I mean, it's it's a long way of asking, I suppose. Is he a Prince fan and that's the blueprint that he's borrowed from he, Prince, or is he, it coincidental? He's for sure he's a Prince fan. Um because he is uh was born in America, um, or raised in America. Yeah. And he's American he and, yeah. and 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 Taiwanese uh, descent. Mm -hmm. So um, Lee Home recognizes universally musicians really respect Prince. And it may have even been that Lee Home heard an interview I did after Prince had uh, passed away, maybe the first or second interview I had done. And that's how he got a hold of me. He said, I found you because I heard this interview. And my wife and I sat and listened to this whole interview and said, that's who we need. That's exactly who I need to, to wow. mix me. And um, got a hold of me cold cold email me and um and that's sort of lee holmes responsible to me for striking and then who who's the lighting engineer on lee holmes when when he said oh you're gonna love the production company and this and that yeah. and he said and guess who's who's designing the show Roy, Roy Bennett. And i went oh yeah. and as soon as he said that <laughs> as soon as he said that i knew yeah. i knew that i could actually look up and watch the show yeah because so often lighting is so poor that i just look down and mix because yeah um hits aren't there and things aren't there roy is always like everything is yeah. right on the money yeah and so i could actually look up and enjoy the show at points and and take it in because video and lighting and depth and width and emotion and the right color for the right look everything is just so good and i can actually i found myself anytime i work with roy i sort of try and make my mix kind of fit in with what he's designed because i know that's going to be good so i can sort of you know mix to not just the musicianship and the playing, but I can actually mix to the lights. And I've taken that inspiration on other tours. And I said, Hey, you know, I know this guy, like there's a, like, if I mix this thing and it goes from right to left, can you make your lights go over? And they'll go, um, yeah. Different LDs, lighting directors say, yeah. um, yeah, I think I could do that at the same time. And I go, cool. Cause that's what I would do. If Roy did some lighting thing, I would follow yeah. that. Yeah. And so then I turn yeah. it around and say, can you follow the sound or can you do that? And, and I think the audience, it may just be, that may be masturbatory in a sense, just like a little too much. Yeah. But I think audiences do, they're smart. Audiences are way yeah. smarter than people for, for, for which they're given credit. And they can feel when something is really, really together. Yeah. I had so, a, a, all right, sorry, Brian. Yeah, yeah, no, sorry. I know I'm dominating here. Sorry. No, no, it's I, saw a clip, I saw a clip with Jacob Collier during the week, who mm. I'll be honest, I just don't get. I appreciate what he's capable of doing with the perfect pitch and all of that, mm -hmm. but it, it just lacks so much emotion to me 
the I, I was I talking with I, I was talking I have to jump in and say I had a discussion with my wife who's an operatic singer and and theater right. director uh, artistic director we were talking about him three days ago and I said the same thing I said yeah because Quin Quincy was working with him and he's works with, with all sorts yeah, of great yeah. people and when I listen to his stuff I go nope like it's yeah. all the elements are there technically and musically but yeah. the emotive and there's something's just not matching up and it, it right there yeah. I would I would I cut bait on him because it, yeah. you can have all the talent and all the the facility in the world and it doesn't mean your stuff he's great to see live because he conducts the audience yeah. and he does all sorts well, of that was that live. was the clip that i saw was him conducting the audience yeah. to do yeah. like a, a modal chord or you know some you know highfalutin uh musical town that i don't <laughs> fully understand but it sounded amazing <laughs> yeah. um, and i i looked at that and i thought people really do underestimate that emotion and that connection that you actually have when you're in an audience and what you're seeing is, you know, a great night of your life. Mm -hmm. People are unlimited in their talent. I think that's what somebody mass, like we're a bell curve, aren't we? You know, there's, yeah. there's going to be greatness in that room that can be that's right. taken advantage of. And, yeah. and somebody like Jacob Collier can, can, um, he can facilitate that in other people, but let's mm -hmm. not forget that it is those people that are the instrument in that. Yeah. Case. Now he may be conducting yeah. them, but like any great conductor, you have to have 105 killer musicians that yeah. know exactly what to do and how much to give. And yes, he can do this and then he can just tilt <laughs> and they'll go down a half step and that's yeah. all cool. And that yeah. is, I guess, Prince would, Prince would have looked at him and said, parlor tricks. Yeah. He would have just thought it was a parlor trick and that it was, yeah. uh, that it wasn't really, because when I listen to the full songs that are arranged and recorded, I never get moved by his stuff. And maybe no. that's just, I just don't, I just don't get him, but um, and it's, it's really strange because he's he's friends with Corey Wong, uh, not Corey Wong, uh, Corey Henry, and Corey Henry is is totally the flip side. Like I've I've seen Corey Henry perform and just thought, wow, now that that's a guy who's invested in what he's delivering to me. Yeah, you there know, are a whole like bunch. I, I believe of, that guy. There's a whole bunch. I'm not familiar with his uh, work, but there are a whole bunch of musicians that are starting to get it. They're starting to get this stuff starting to sink in about um not only prince's principles of owning things and being in control of things and making that part of your deal but also the effect that live performance they just simply have to become good live performers because that's where all the money is yeah um i was talking with isaac <clears throat> the lead singer of the fray he's now stepped away from that role in the band um but isaac one day i saw him in chicago and i said what's up and he said you know my song just hit I don't know what it was like 20 million hit, uh, listens or some, some crazy amount. And he said, I've made like three grand off of that. He said, I can't do that anymore. I just can't, no. you, you know, it's somebody's making money, but I'm not sure. And, and what I think we miss from Prince in the last six plus years, seven years is the fact that he, well, first of all, a few things that kind of stun people. He didn't know Donald Trump was president. He, he never knew that because like, he died before Trump became president. Yeah. He, yeah. he didn't know what COVID, you know, if you told yeah. him what COVID was, he would go, what is that? Um, but also he, in the last six years, we've, we've really figured out that the commodification of human beings and their, their time looking at a screen, that is what it's yeah. being sold. Not the music, yeah. not the commercial. It's the, it's the, you are the, the product you are the commodity they're selling your likes 
and these companies are selling your attention and how much time, and they've got all the metrics on how much time. They're not going to just hear this beautiful uh, uh, solo, guitar solo on some mm. some yeah. record and go, that's yeah, beautiful. It, it's not about that. They're looking for the amount of time someone listened, when they tuned out of the show, they're writing shows created on, based upon the metrics of when people turned it off or how many episodes they watched. Why isn't Blacklist popular, popular anymore? Oh, because we already did that storyline. Okay, write a new story. And so they are the creators, content yeah. creators, are now reacting to the metrics of why people turn them off. Yeah, the irony of the algorithm. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you, you, you blew my mind then when you said that because... I mean, I kind of lose track at times. I, I grieved Prince quite quickly. And because I'm surrounded by this music all the time, I came through the other side of accepting that he was gone quite quite soon. And basically, he will never die to me because mm. there's, there's more bootlegs that I can, I can ever listen to. The, mm -hmm, the estate mm -hmm. are going to open up the treasure trove, you know, in, in perfect stereo quality for me. So... I, I kind of stopped chalking up the timeline. You know, he didn't see a lot of what I consider to be this sort of like fourth turning of, you know, that society is starting to really go down the pan. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of relieved by that, but also I would have loved to have seen his reaction. Like, That's I can't exactly imagine right. that Minneapolis exactly and George right. Floyd would have got to that sort of extent. Oh, think of that. He, been he didn't around. see that. He didn't see... Yeah. Um... He didn't see pot start to become legalized. He didn't see mm. the um, uh, the rightful uh, 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 rights of the LGBTQIA plus community and trans rights and all these things that are important to us culturally and societally, yeah. really important to some of us. That um, the, Prince was a great barometer of our society. Yeah. Real good artists always are. Um, yeah. They they are sort of a reflection. And um, it's to see what he would have been able to do. That's why I say, and I don't want to rain on your uh, parade either, but <clears throat> you can release all the stuff in the vault at one time, all for free, which I think they should do. I think they should just give it out for free. I think that that would be a really beautiful gift that someone could help wow. his fan, help him make and just give it out for free. Um, and um, uh but he'll never walk in a room again and play live. And that to me, yeah. not because it's self-serving because I don't have to be the one mixing them. But the fact that you can't get in that room with him and have air move with his mm. actual body and spirit and mind in that room, that's, um, I'm not deifying him because he had a no, billion no. flaws, but he, to be around that sort of creative thing in a live setting and in the room with him, we all know what it's like to see an artist we love for the first time. I don't care if it's Brad Pitt, you know, you see him on the street or whether it's Prince in concert. And we, we feel that way. And then we want to be, but you can't see Brad Pitt and then watch him act in a whole movie. No. That doesn't happen. You can no. just see Brad Pitt. Um, but Prince, you could see him and then get to experience me enveloped in the same sound that he was. And you yeah. shared an experience and Prince fans understand that really, really well. And the fact yeah. that that's never going to happen is sort of painful. But um, if I get, if I so, can get over it, anyone can. So I, I agree with you. Um, but I went to the celebrations where they had, you know, the the gig at uh, the Target Center and the Armory, where you would have oh. Prince on video on the screen yes. and a live band underneath him. You know, with with Kirk doing the the musical director role. And I thought, why not just go to Berkeley? 
sweep up an entire year of, of students, teach them how to play that music with yourself on sound, Morris, Hayes, Kirk, people who knew how to, you know, direct the bands and, and, and yes. make a band work, and then send that out on the road like a touring uh, outfit, a, a musical, you know? And that's a way, because Brian will never get to see Prince live. No. You know, I was I was blessed, even though I'm, you know, in a completely uh, different country. I got to see him more times than IIG is on the clock. So it's mm -hmm. it's a it was an amazing thing. But that I've witnessed that and thought that's close enough to win a whole legion of, of the next generation of fans. If well, you just send I, that out on tour. I believe that idea that I had and made public <clears throat> is a good one where we take the January 21st, 2016 show the piano show, mm -hmm. the multi-tracks yeah. of that. And I would, and Kirk is, is my idea to go out on the road and we play that back in the venues that they were played in in Australia. And, yeah. or we play that January 21st show, uh, the one at Paisley Park that was so special, that lightning in the bottle performance, yeah. those two shows and play them on the road in London in Paris, yeah. in Munich, in I'll go all over. And then Kirk and I do a question and answer session later with all the tough questions. Kirk's going to yeah. get some tough questions about oh, that. Yeah. Although yeah. I think people have gotten over that a little more and, and understood that Prince was responsible for himself ultimately. Yeah. Um, uh, but it would just to give you, and I, and I could certainly lend my humble opinion as to what we were, go, what he was going through on that tour and what, but because there's a lot of autobiographical stuff in those shows and you get yeah. to hear him just play piano and sing. And I would actually mix it live um, where I had the tracks. I wouldn't just be playing back a stereo, you know, yeah. you wouldn't just be at a listening party. I would actually mix it after the show. When we did the Q and a, I would turn up just his vocal and listen to a portion or listen to just to his piano playing and talk about what, what was going on in that song and, and listening. And I think that would be not only good for people in their healing, in the, the process of their healing, but also it would be instructional and informative and hopefully inspire even that one per, I know it's, it sounds kind of ethereal, but somebody in one of those rooms will go on to do great things, right? Yes. Probably many of people in those rooms and just being on the, the end of something that inspires someone to go out and do something great is <clears throat> the greatest honor that any of us can have because the money we yeah. make all the money I've ever made from touring is probably gone. I mean, I saved a little, but not much. So it comes in and it goes out. So it's not a, if it's not a money thing, then what is it? It's about inspiring mm. those after us to sort of take up the mantle. I'm surprised that more engineers don't, some do um, contact me and say, Hey, I'm working on this. What do you think? And I listened to that interview you did with, yes, you can, you know, and, I was going to want to ask you about this. I always encourage people to get a hold of me. I'm sure Susan feels the same way, although you can enroll at her class in Berkeley, but um, just to, to ask questions and question. And that's what Prince did in his whole career. And that's what a lot of artists I did that, with whom I work. They've questioned things and that's where great art comes from questioning how things are yeah. done. Yeah. So uh, Scotty, you mentioned about Prince's guitar tone. So when I started doing these reaction videos about a year ago, I'd look and I'd look and I'd look and I'm like, Oh my God, he's using EMG active pickups. Then he's using Mesa amps. Like it's almost like for like a metal band is set up. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And also using the active pickups, like how is it mixing that with the dynamics of the band and what was going on? Um, I think if I'm, unless I'm wrong, he used EMG 81s 
and yeah. maybe 85, maybe there's an 85 mixed in there, but he used EMG pickups. He used, and he used different pickups on different things. His, his Honer Mad Cat, which I affectionately known, you know, call the, the crocodile telly. Yeah. That's just a nickname I gave it because I, you can always tell it's that Honer Mad Cat because it, it has part of the pick guard looks like a profile. I told Prince that he, I was like, what are you going to use the crocodile telly for that? And he said, what? And he usually didn't say what, or what do you mean? He was too cool for that. But in that case, he said, what? And I said, oh, right there. <laughs> that looks like a crocodile's face. And he said, oh. And so then he called it, I'm using the crocodile telly for that, which I thought was funny in 2002. He said that over the PA once. Uh, and Prince was, he used different guitars for different things. Um, I think that guitar cost him, I mean, Chris might know the, the story. It was either 30 or 60 bucks. He bought it at like a guitar or, or a gas station or something. A gas station. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy, but it shows you that it's not in the actual rig. And I know Brian behind you, you've got all sorts of stuff. Uh, you look like you could just jump in the band night ranger with that V flying. <laughs> but, um, and I bet you do know the solo from don't tell me you love me, even with the, the, the Paul oh, Brad Willis, Brad Willis. Oh man. He's yeah. a great player too. Yeah. So, uh, there, there's all sorts of uh, guitars that Prince used, but as everyone knows, and you would probably admit, you really only need three guitars and you only need three tones. You need a clean, a dirty, and a lead. You need, exactly. and you need a, um, either a Strat or a Tele, one of those two. Most people would say Strat. So a Strat, probably a Les Paul and a, a some sort of gives some sort of hollow body, Epiphone gives them something. And that's, a, you can get everything from those, right? But it's it's where they start to differ is where you start to get preference. Um, I always thought the Hours Wild looked super cool, the the white one. I love that guitar, that white, the question of you guitar, I call it. Um, mm -hmm. It didn't sound great. It was brittle because it was, you know, a piece of art, really. Um, yeah. I thought the Mad Cat sounded pretty good. Um, it sounds like a telly, so there's not that chunky bottom on the, you know, so it never sounded. Um, and for Prince being a bass player, his his tone was remarkably mid-heavy. <clears throat> and I have a theory about that because just like his vocal, he thought that things always sounded like there was too much bottom and too much top. Like it's too much treble. It's too much bass. Well, what that says is that you're missing mids in your hearing. That is a, tell that is a telltale sign of people when they complain about hearing the things that 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 they do you can look to their their hearing loss being in the area where they haven't described because they can't hear wow. that so prince used to say <clears throat> too much highs to turn the treble down to and i would be out there going what are you kidding like i can't even hear the hi-hat now if i did what he said and and then too much woofers too much bottom and i would go what that's just a kick drum going Doo! in someone's chest <clears throat> if anything i don't suffer as an engineer <clears throat> the excuse me that sin of making low end run all over a venue and you can't even hear because it's so much low end I, my low end is always tight i always make it go Doop. it just sounds like a kick drum a, a lower a lower percussive drum and yeah. um and i use high pass filters on a kick and on a bass but prince would complain about highs and lows and i think it's because he had lost some mids in his hearing um, so is that something that you'd seen evolve over over the time? No. Or was it already gone by the 90s? It know, was it was there when I his tone was like that in in 92, 93 when we were touring. Wow. Um <clears throat> I had heard 
that tone. I think back then, I think Matt, Matt Larson put his rig together. He had a good rig back then. Okay. Around the era of Batman, he had a nice rig. He had he had chunky bottom, mm-hmm. and he had kind of soaring highs. And then when that big tall uh, rig went away, he went back to actual amps, and I think that's when we went back to that mid tone. Have you um, tried to pinpoint of- where you think that that loss of range occurred? Oh. Can you hear it through albums or, or live oh. performances? I'm not sure because I think he always on records. I think he got the tone he wanted. A lot of times he wanted just a clean tone. You'd be amazed at how much you'd be. It's remarkable how much he literally pull, plugged a, a guitar into a DI into the board. Um, yeah. He could do stuff just with a clean tone. And I remember he had an engineer, a Canadian fellow named Stu. I don't know Stu's last name. Stu was working with him. And I was in this control room, room with Prince. And Prince said, Stu, turn this on in the, <clears throat> turn this on. He was going to play something for me. Yeah. And it came out of Prince's pedal board and Stu said, oh, hang on, you know, and plugged it in. And then he patched in something at the patch bay. And then he rolled over to the, to this Avalon and started to put on this compressor on Prince. And Prince said, no, no, I want this to go through those right into that. And he pointed to the tape machine and yeah. said, come on, Stu, come on now, Stu. I know you can do it. He just didn't want to go through all the stuff. Yeah. Um, that, he, he wanted his boss pedals and he wanted a decent amp. And um, I think he could have benefited from something like uh, like uh, Edward Van Halen had that 5150 an amp with a, a post a post chunk sound, that yeah. low end came post. And yeah. something like that, I think Prince would have, if he would have had the ego to plug into one of Eddie. I know he respected Eddie's playing yeah. uh, quite a bit. And he respected Angus Young and Malcolm Young from ACDC quite a bit. Um, because he used to talk about that little guy when he was talking about Angus, he always used to say that little guy, and um, so he had favorite players, yeah. um, and clearly Carlos Santana. So, but he, but his tone itself, I think it fit. It, it was in the constraints of time. He would just get a tone going, yeah. and even Takumi, even Takumi would admit that at times it was sort of brittle and sort of mid heavy, high mid heavy. And for me, out front, I would go, "Oh my God! Like, uh, do I need to actually do I need to actually add in some bottom to see if it's there?" Mm-hmm. And I don't want to do that. I'm I'm somebody who believes only in subtraction of a natural sound, and I would actually have to add a little bottom to get some low end. And that's that, that always sort of hurt my heart to do that. But yeah, that's another thing I love about Prince. So, like, I some of the effects units out now for guitar, you need a PhD just to learn how to turn it on, and like. You know, I'm I'm a firm believer in all my years of playing, you know, the dives around Canada is good tube amp, a few pedals, your guitar and your fingers. Some That's of the it. stuff out now where it's like, oh my God, are you serious? Like if for some of the live rigs, if that went down, who's gonna fix it? Or Prince yes. was very simplistic with with his setup and he knew certain times like he liked to hit the flanger at a certain point to give yeah. some effect with his solo to kind of give it a new sense of dynamics and stuff. But sure. he kept it, he seemed to have kept it pretty simple what he had on stage with the pedal board. Well, he had to, uh, that was some, that some of that was necessity. He had a Bob Bradshaw rig at one point, if I remember. We heard. He, he had a, so he had a Bradshaw rig. I, I don't know. Um, he had different formations and he used them, but yeah. he always, you have to remember, this is a guy who at Paisley Park was rehearsing a lot of times by himself, or he would come down to the stage and play guitar by himself. And I know that because I would leave rehearsal and I would only leave his guitar up and muted and the PA on. And then I would come back in the morning and it would be unmuted. So I know he Mm. came down at some point in the night and unmuted it and just played for a while and then set his guitar down and left. 
And on more than one occasion, Kirk would be called in the middle of the night. Prince had called Kirk and said, something's happening in the soundstage. What is it? And Kirk would drive out to Paisley Park and he'd go and stuff would be feeding back just because Prince left his guitar wow. on or he left or a, or a vocal mic started to feedback. Prince always had a live PA in rehearsal room yeah. or in the soundstage, the, either the MPG room or the soundstage, always live, mics always on. Mm. So in that, in, that, in that spirit, he had to have something that he could work on himself when he wasn't employing a guitar tech who wasn't in town from New York or LA or London doing his guitars. And the easiest way was a guitar through a bunch of boss stuff. No zoom pedals, no, no 9010 or 9020, none of the fancy stuff, none yeah. of the centaur compressor, just, just boss pedals and an amp. <clears throat> and Prince could make all the magic from that. Yeah. Um, here's an education for all the, the smaller regional players who, who are playing, want a gig every weekend to make money. I, I was originally like a, like a hard rock metal shred guy. I was into some jazz fusion. I learned very quickly when I was younger, there's no money in that. So I sold my soul and I kind of started playing the country circuit. You know, I wasn't a great singer, but I'd also do some singing duties or whatever. But um, we learned, I learned very quickly. If you have your own production, when you're playing the small clubs, you, you're going to get more work. But I also quickly learned that we were talking about the kick drum. When it's hitting people, it's mixed, it's hitting people in the chest. That really helps get people up and get moving and dancing, which you want in a club, right? So without giving away all your trade secrets on that, like what were some of the things you would do with, you mentioned using a high-pass filter, but with mic placement, types of mics, what, what would you do for the kick drum miking? What I love, that's a great, uh, you kind of sort of, without talking about it, you set the T for me here. Yeah. Um, every artist, I decide, whether or not they're built from the bottom up or the top down. It's um, Lady Gaga, that was a bottom up mix. Um, it was all about the LGBTQIA plus crowd, her gay boys, as she called them. I, I have to do it. It's got to move my gay boys, right? So she had all her audience members and I needed to move the bottom end because, <clears throat> because um, a lot of times the LGBTQ plus community, IA plus community doesn't feel like they have a church in life. So clubs, especially in the 90s and the 2000s, became the church for gay people. So that's what got people up and moving. That's what got their spirit moving. And having a lot of gay friends, I understood that. And I knew how to approach it mixing an artist like Gaga, because I built her mix from low end. Scissor Sisters was still one of my favorite all-time bands to mix. They're top two or three, for sure. Um, uh, maybe number one, believe it or not. They, their mix was bottom up. Baby Daddy and Jake uh, Shears, they said, Scotty, build that low end. It's great. So then I build the low end where I need it and then set the mix sort of on top of it. Um, the Fray, um, Prince, believe it or not, um, anything I do in Asia, that's usually a top down mix. Got to be all the hanging PA, the articulation, the clarity, all of that. I bring the low end up to match that volume and intensity just so it sounds full range. But there are some artists that I build um, that, that want a booming low end. They want a big, tough low end. And others I build from the top down to make sure that everything is heard, all the reverbs, the clarity, nothing is obfuscated by low end. So it's, it's just the approach. And I would, I would tell your viewers to think about, you know, know your audience, know your audience. That, that goes whether you're releasing records, that goes whether or not you're, you're a producer, whether you're uh, a preacher, you're going to preach, know your, your, the people in the, in the, in the sanctuary at that time, like whatever it is, 
we all have to know our audience. And my wife taught me that phrase, know your audience. Who are you mixing for? What are you, what are you trying to achieve in this? And <clears throat> so building, building a mix from an EQ standpoint is actually a really good shortcut that I have. Um, but yeah, I mean, nowadays you, you can't go into a gig and just lop down a, 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 an amp and a, and a bunch of strung out boss pedals that are probably buzzing and then get away with that for very long. Time is, a, a, you know, there's crunch time and, and go time. There are companies like Yamaha who bought, um, I'm a big fan of their, their, their consoles. I use the Yamaha Rivage consoles live. I think they're completely musical. And it's when I, when I walk up to a Yamaha Rivage console, I feel like I'm coming up to a musical instrument. I'm walking up to a musical instrument. Mm -hmm. It's not like an avid S6L and, or a profile. And it's not like a Digico. Those are clinical to me and they're too clean and they're too, they, they don't have any soul in them. You have to do things. You can get good sound out of them, but Yamaha, you get great sound. And it feels like that's a company that makes grand pianos and guitars and mm. trumpets and violins and flutes and basses and montage keyboards, you know, and that, that company knows musicality. So um, I forgot where I, where I was going with the Yamaha thing, but, yeah. um, but it's built, they, they bought line six a few yeah. years ago. Yeah. Yamaha bought line six, yeah. Well, you can go get this something called a pod or a pod go. I know they have the helix. You can get a pod go. I think it's called pod go, right? Yeah. With the RF unit in it. Like wow. the great guitar player from Lee Helms band, Jack Tamarat. Uh, you can look him up on YouTube. Phenomenal player. Phenomenal player. Yeah. Incredible note value, feeling, structure, emotion, yeah. everything. Jack is phenomenal. Jack, he he's a Yamaha and a Line 6 guy. And he, um, <clears throat> Jack said, Scotty, this new Pod Go coming out, like it's got all the sounds from the Helix, but it's this big and it's got an, a, a wireless built right in. Yeah. I mean, for 500 bucks, you can get out of the whole game yeah. and you could just walk in and tell the sound engineer, either mono or stereo, one or two yeah. cables. Here yeah. you go. And, and get your clean crunch, dirty, your delays, your stereo stuff, all that. Yeah. And some people take advantage of that. Some people hold on to the past and want all those things in line, which invariably with the amount of growing stages, lighting, and now video support there's more rf in the air than ever so yeah. we, on the ground you have this giant antenna that's just picking up line level signal and guitar players wonder why when they let go it goes you know yeah. and it's my job to sort of <clears throat> gate out that as much as i can but then also go to them and go say yeah. we need to talk you know we need to do something about that noise and I'm, start to isolate it when you're saying that I, I remember doing a big uh new year's gig i'm gonna say 2007 into 2008 I had in-ear monitors. The whole band had in-ear monitors, but I was picking up someone's cell phone, dialing or something, and I would start freaking out because I couldn't hear myself singing. But um, uh, but anyway, yeah, it's uh, very much um, uh, with all that. It's you know the world's going and it's moving, and it's like as guitar players, do we and musicians, do we go with it or like you mentioned the in-ear monitors? I think from using them. Uh, you know, you, you, it's right in your skull. You can it's you can really tell if you're in key or not. But yeah. I think some of the bigger, older acts that started to turn to them, I think it was to save their ears and their hearing. Like, uh, but you were saying that you thought Prince might have had some uh, uh, hearing damage, and I can understand the resistance to the in ears because you don't you yeah. feel like you're separated from the audience. It's it's yes. weird for a while. Yeah, and it and a lot of it. Well, it started where people went, hey, um, it started for a couple of reasons. Musicians wanted to save their hearing. They figured they were better off with in-ear monitors than wedges being really loud. 
The second thing is production managers started to do the math on how much truck space and truck weight mm. they were going to save by not having wedges and all these amplifiers to run the wedges. Yeah. And that makes a difference in the right hand bottom corner of the, 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 the budget. And, and also um, the, with playback becoming a new actual position in a band, you know, their playback engineers large, oftentimes now are in the photo with the band. Um, so they, they are part of the show. So you have orchestras, click tracks, horn parts that are on tape, interstitial stuff, um, all this sort of video playback. That all comes, the audio for video playback, that all comes from the, the uh, uh, playback position. And uh, they, when you have playback, you have to have a click track, right? And you can't have it because the musicians have to be on time with it. Well, you can't have a click track coming through a live wedge. So you have to have in-ear monitors. In the old days, when it was first being, uh, before the ubiquity of playback, the drummers would just have headphones on because they'd be listening to a click from the playback. And the rest of the band is following the drummer anyway, right? But they can't tell if things get off either. So um, now everyone's used to it and they all have their own color and they all have their own like cool things. So they put them in and they can hear better and they are making an investment into their future. Although you can still hurt yourself if you have yeah. a wrong setup in, with those. I wanted but to, it, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm saying that the, it was driven on a th three levels, three prongs in that thrust. One was saving hearing, one was saving money, and one was um, the proliferation of playback and click tracks and things that the band can't hear. I know when I work with the revolution, um, there are times that Wendy, when Wendy's singing, Wendy said, you know what, I, right there, I just need a little cue for the, for the, um, for that line of that song. Yeah. You know, Prince's lyrics are so, sometimes they're sort of mixed metaphors and wendy said i just need help with that line and so i recorded myself saying the line yeah just really I, quickly and then so it happens right before she needs to sing it so that's a cue sheet basically you you were saying about how people can hurt themselves i i had a weird occurrence i wanted to share with the audience and with you uh it was country band playing a country dive uh, in canada um the sound guy for whatever reason they did the sound but we still had our inner monitors the the oxens he just had it caked in reverb. Mm. I sang half the night. Uh, at the end of the night, I got through the night, but I was so sick, you know, when we were done and when I left from all the reverb, uh, like I was literally almost throwing up. I was so sick yeah. for quite some. And have you heard of that before? Sure, sure. That's just uh, affecting your inner ear. And yeah. when you get, um, you, we all know that anyone who's been in music long enough has put on a pair of headphones and cued something up and it was accidentally all the way up. And then what happens is you hear a tone or something that loud and you're, it's just, not, you're, you're actually, you go, boom, it sort of, it sort of throws your whole vision off in equilibrium ah, before you yeah. turn it down and then start back again, sheepishly and come up. And um, that's essentially what's happening is you're affecting the movement of the inner ear okay. and the cochlea. So um, when that happens, then you're in, you're in trouble and repeated use of in-ear monitors, even without actual error between, you know, you hearing um uh, some people have pitch that uh, can be an issue some people have pitch issues because there's no doppler effect they'll they'll have one ear that's slightly off from the other and we all know this from on occasion you can listen to a, a tone when it, your headphones are out here and when you put it on it sounds a little bit sh sharper you go whoa you go like that and you go like this and the so song sounds a little sharper that's just a doppler effect okay. of like when an ambulance goes by in the the tone goes down as the ambulance goes by. Well, of course it's not going down, but it has to do with air and movement and all sorts of stuff, but, and reflection. But 
um, in-ear monitors are certainly the way to go. Everybody, they're ubiquitous. We're all into it. It's good. It's a good thing ultimately. Yeah. And the next, the next iteration of that will be spatial audio. And when I mixed Ame, this great artist in Taipei, uh, in March and April, they came to me and said, how would you like to mix in surround? And I said, yeah. And they said, how about Dolby Atmos? And I said, it'd be great. I'm up for it. Now the desks aren't ready to do it yet, at least the one I use live, uh, nor are any of the other companies that make that level of desk. Um, that's more like a post-production thing that you would use, you know, somewhere with a in, with an SSL in post-production. And I said, well, I think we can figure out a way to do it. And we couldn't mix in Atmos because we couldn't get speakers on the ceiling pointing down there. Much too many, many, way too many lights throughout the venue. So I decided on 11.1, Dolby 11.1. So we mixed in Dolby 11.1. We, I worked with the great master Tudu Chu, who is a, the most awarded Oscar, uh, a Golden Horse Award uh, winner in sound effects and editing in Asian history. Um, and we worked together and figured out how to make something, you know, you have to know the size of the venue to know how fast it's going to move through the venue mm -hmm. through all the different speakers. And so we had to work out all that math and put together just a phenomenal show that wasn't really trickery. It wasn't something that was just like, whoa, that's cool. Stuff's coming from around me. We then went back to an Enfire sound where it was coming from the speakers and where people saw it. It wasn't like I was putting guitar solos over there just to show what I could do. You have to use that stuff sparingly. It's more special yeah. if it's only used sparingly as an, as an effect rather than just overwhelm people with that. So we used it for a lot of interstitial stuff and one particular sound where I was panning stuff around the venue and Ame really wanted to show that off, show me off, you know, panning stuff around a venue. So, um, it, it, that'll be the next step for in-ear monitors. People will have sounds placed. There's a unit called the Clang, K-L-A-N-G. And you can get the app and put regular headphones on and try it out. And it's quite stunning and you can make things. So if a guitar player is over here and one's over here, you can have them pan that way. And if you turn around and face the drummer, they will switch with you and they will hold their position on stage there there are things that do that now i don't okay. think ultimately it's that important it's almost mm -hmm. like again where are we reaching the point of usefulness and masturbatory effort where is that level where no, exactly and i you just say realized, that but i, no, I kind of think that we're headed towards that especially at post-covid perhaps mm -hmm. that virtual reality experience of a, a live concert is actually closer than we we think now you know because i think I, so I think you're, that then it, that's all the technology get built, isn't it? You, you're absolutely right. And the the only the caveat with that is that most people um, they can't set up 11.1 in their living room, but they can mm. set it up in their headphones. So I'm glad mm. to see at least that that the whole all this coding, um, and you don't need special coding for Dolby Atmos. It's very different mm. than Dolby like 5.1 and things. Atmos doesn't require that, and that's really the the invention of all inventions because then you can hear things that go up and down and around the back. And it's all done with, with phase and, and delay and things like that. I mean, yeah. it's just, a, you only have two sources, but doing that, um, or when you're watching your iPhone at the, and you have these AirPods in and I turn and the sound stays over here where my screen is, mm. I go, Oh, and I turn that feature off. Cause it's weird. Right. Yeah. But you yeah. might like that at a show and maybe we'll get to yeah. the point where if we get one or two successful lawsuits against an artist for being too loud, Maybe everyone will go to bringing their own headphones to a show and you can listen to a whole show. Prince is not, Prince was not beyond that. He did say to me, hmm. he asked me, did you go see the Beatles show in Las Vegas? And I said, yeah, yeah. The, 
where the speakers are in the seats? He said, yeah. Okay. I said, that was cool. Yeah. And he thought that was cool, but that wouldn't work for Prince because you're dancing. You're yeah. sitting watching the Beatles show. Yeah. But, I mean, so it doesn't really work, but. Yeah. I, I kind of hope if that technology does become commonplace that it's, it's in, in some way retro uh, active because mm. some of the best bootlegs I've got are the ones where they were recorded binaurally. Mm-hmm. And if, if it could put me back in the room even more, can I ask you a question about bootlegs? And I, I don't want to, sure. you know, tread on oh, any toes anything, in any way. Right. Something like 1988, the Trojan horse, this, this soundboard recording where Prince is doing just my imagination cover. And it's, you know, one of his best guitar solos, certainly that any fan had heard. You get this bootleg just released to the market you know, the underground market, a few months after the gig in 1988. And it's absolutely perfect sound. Mm -hmm. And there's a part of me that thinks he knows he can't do it through Warners, but it's such a a document at that point in his career of how good he is live that isn't reflected anywhere else. That my suspicion is that he's the person who leaked that. I understand every other bootleg where it's, you know, somebody took a tape into a venue and, but these soundboard ones just they they seem to have a little different provenance to me. Do you have any suspicions that he might have leaked stuff he was proud of in that yes. that way? I, I don't know it for a fact, but if I'm to be really totally candid, I would say that yes, if you have so much that you know wants to get out and you don't want to go through the normal slow channel and process of releasing that, you just mix it and release it. Yeah. You can get it out. Now I can say it uh that I'm very, very proud that my through-the-board mixes, you they are almost impossible to find because I took them and I told Prince, you, you're not going to find my board mixes out there. I challenged him. And one time he actually challenged me back and said, I found one of your mixes out there, made me come into Studio A, played it. And I went, holy shit, that sounds amazing. But, and it sounded like my mix through a board, but then right at the end of the song, you heard, all right, whoa, and you heard people clapping. And I looked yeah. at him and I went, that's a bootleg. That's just a microphone. There's yeah. no, and he went, and he ejected the dat and ripped the, I don't know, dats are hard to rip open. He ripped the dat open and just like pulled the tape out of a dat. And he said, cool. And just, and then I went, oh, I guess I'm done in here. And I left. So he thought he found one, but he didn't. It was a mic that was just right in front of the PA or something. Um, I'm very proud that my dats, I would record them, label them. I did everything short of photographing them because there wasn't even the ubiquity of cell phones back then where I would have thought I'm going to, but I did make all his security guys sign that day. I would date it from, mm-hmm. they would sign that I gave them two dats and two video cassettes or whatever. And then, mm-hmm. and I have a pile of those from Madonna, from Prince, from certain artists that I gave you, I turned these over to you and you can't find them out there yeah. because they went directly back to Dave Hampton who cataloged them in mm-hmm. to the vault at Paisley Park. And eventually they ended up at Iron Mountain. I suspect at some point um, they will all be released or they'll have to come to me and say, how did you do that? Or what date was this or whatever? It's all on the dats. But um, but uh, that would be interesting to hear shows like that, especially the after shows. But yeah, absolutely. Getting back to your the original premise, for sure. I mean, if mm-hmm. Prince has, I'm, I'm not a, directly accusing him of doing that. When you had almost nobody that had access like that and the time to, to put up a tape and then mix it 
and master, not even master it, just bounce it down to two and then get it on a format they could get out of the building. Hmm. It, it had to have been, I mean, that's my suspicion would be yes. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, by the way. Hmm. Um, I think what held him back from admitting it, if he did do it, would be that he, it would violate some sort of contractual thing he had with the record company. But yeah, sure. if he was really proud of something, he'll really, he'd release it. Sure. Why not? Why not yeah. let it go? Why not let it grow legs and walk out? And, and as you're mixing uh, one of these gigs as they're, they're happening and you're, you're using the screen, you know, to, to, uh, to do so, could you see people in the audience and suspect them of, of, uh, of bootlegging and, and recording? Because there's a, no, a story, isn't there, about no. a guy with a turban at one of the gigs? There is a, one of Prince's security guys is head of security around 2000, early 2000s. Trevor Allen, Trevor came to me and said, Scotty, if you ever see anyone who you suspect, mm -hmm. just get a hold of us on the radio and we'll just throw them right out. Cause he's really in a hot, he was really, really protective of the one night alone tour. Yeah. And I said, cool. And I never saw anyone. I know it was going on. I'm sure it was, but it had to be, but I was always so busy mixing and focusing on what I was doing that I was the last thing I was doing was looking for bootleggers. Um, yeah. I was really let down by one engineer used to be Prince's monitor engineer. I run into him at a venue. I can't get too specific. Um, ran into him at a venue that Prince was playing on the West coast. And I walked in and I was like, Hey, and he said, Hey, I'm your tech for the day. And I said, cool. Well, this must be like coming home for you. And he's like, yeah, this is going to be great. I haven't seen him perform and whatever. I think he was fired at some, let go at some point. In the course of me setting up my soundboard, Prince started to, he came in and started to rehearse. They came up to me and said, they need a press feed. You know, there'll be a camera crew here for the first three songs. Do you have a press feed? It was an analog desk. I said, uh, uh, yeah, I can probably use monitor out. Yeah, I'll, I'll figure it out. I walked around the desk and opened the doghouse and looked down. And in the doghouse was a mini disc recorder recording and i went i had i went what what and i look up and that guy who used to was running across the venue holding a co coffee but running across the venue to to intercept me hmm. he ran up to me and as i was looking confused like what the hell is this it was a blue mini disc record. i went what is and he went i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm so sorry please don't say anything and i went what are you doing and he's like i don't know i just i, I just wanted part of my past to be I don't know. I don't know. Please, please don't say anything. You begged me because he would have gotten fired from his job at that venue as well. And I went, no, man, don't worry about it. Don't, oh God, don't. I ejected the mini disc and broke it up and right in front of him, put it in my pocket. And it was just all torn, you know, it's a little silver, tore it yeah. all up and shoved it in my pocket and just went, man, I was so disappointed in that guy. Yeah. Um, and because I always felt like I was protecting Prince's best, or I had to protect all the artists' best interests. And so, but do I think Prince was above reproach? Do I think he was above that? No, I'm sure he released certain things. He had the, he was the only one that the motive, the opportunity, the availability and sure. the know-how to mix it leisurely, mix it, choose a reverb, release it, turn up the solo and then mix it. Nobody else, everyone else would have been mixing on a, you know, like a thief in the night with, you know, black, <laughs> look like a ski mask on. So, yeah. so sure, I'm, I don't think I'm he was above you. that. And I'm with you in, in terms of the after shows. I think it's 
it's an aspect that Prince fans are so aware of, you know, that the mythical after show and those of us who were lucky enough to go and see them, you know, it's, it's almost the bedrock of, of really why I'm such a fan is, is the, the live performance in that, that situation. Because it was a secret that you knew wasn't going to get out yeah. to 20,000 people. It was yeah. only there for those 500 people. And it was something yeah. that happened that you'll never forget. And I would see celebrities. I mean, they were enamored enough with seeing Prince. I would watch celebrities see Prince for the first time. But to see these incredible musicians to be around front of house and just to watch him, you know, even even at the end in St. Bart's, when we were in St. Bart's on Mm. uh, New Year's Eve 2016. So, and we started after midnight, a little bit after midnight. So, um, but to see Paul McCartney there, right next to my soundboard and he he came up to me and he said so who's going to do the countdown and i said holy shit and i grabbed my <laughs> mic and i said i grabbed my mic and said you are and so i said here and i handed him my thing and i tapped my apple watch ten, nine, and of course eight. yeah but he he counted so slowly that we yeah. got to 10 and i was like okay and he went That's 10 awesome. nine yeah. Eight, well we can't talk seven. fast it's, it's not and, and so so you had these fireworks going on on all these ships yeah. and he was only at number six yeah. you know i was like oh. but, yeah. but to see but to see celebrities um see him really incredible musicians watch him i had a producer once and you might know chris because you're in that region um uh a, a guy came up to me after um god i'm gonna forget his name now um after a show in london and um i may have to i may have to come back with it with that because i can't remember the producer's name some producer came up to me and a guy came up to me and said are you're the engineer and i said yes and he said um uh he said um he said uh that that was the best live show i've ever heard and i know a thing or two about sound and then I said, oh, yeah, nice to meet you, man. And he said his name, and I forgot. I, I feel embarrassed. I forget his name. And one of the guys next to me went, wait, are you so-and-so? And he said, yes. And I'll think of the name, and you can put it in the show notes. And he walked out, and he said, Scotty, you will never receive a higher compliment than that in your career, that you just got a compliment from audio royalty. And now I have to think of the name. It's going to kill me, but... Uh, what what uh, sort of era and uh, age range? Are we uh, like a Trevor about? Horn type, um, uh, big producer, uh, British. Um, I'll think of, it'll come to me. It'll come to me in yeah. a moment of, of uh, levity here. So, so while we're on that celebrity path, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I've heard the the story about Wesley Snipes, which I just think is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. You know, yeah, that was um, fun. But throw out some names that was, you know, back in the Paisley days, would would people just turn up to out of the blue? I mean, who would who would we be surprised? Because I think you know we we'd expect Stevie Wonder to come. Yeah, you know, play if he was in Wonder, town. And, yeah, what it, what it really was, what um, more than being, um, there are tons of musicians, and that's to be expected, right? Because he's a musician's musician. The Nora Jones and the the um, the the uh, Steve Vai's and the the um, just from all different walks of yeah. music, they would love and they would show up and I'd be like, whoa. And uh, but it was really for me, um, it was the celebrities the actors that love the tom cruises the the um the Matthew uh, mcconaughey seemed to be a huge fan yeah out yeah in the and, LA and, and, uh, yes and uh um the um uh van zant stephen van zant yeah they were shooting they were on the 
they were doing the Sopranos at the time and he showed up in front of house in Japan. Weirdly. He just said, Hey, are you Scotty? And I went, yeah. Oh my God. Hey man, come and bring it in. Like, did he it's pull so you back in? to see him. And I said, and I said something to him, like it, it was fun to me. I said, I said, um, <clears throat> well, I'm watching your show, man. And I love it. And he said, he said, Scotty, you know, the first thing we do when we get a script is we go to the back page and read backwards just to make sure we're still alive <laughs> at, the, at the end of an episode. I thought that was really funny. Yeah, That was really funny. But it, it was really about, um, Prince was really a celebrity's celebrity in general, yeah. right? Because he had such an, he was such an enigma and such a, so cryptic. And it's hard to manufacture that. He just sort of was that since he was a kid. So we yeah. all had that sort of, now I grew, I didn't grow fully out of it because I still would get nervous on occasion when he would come in, but to the room, to the soundstage. But that was for a different reason. It's because I didn't know what curveball he was going to throw that day. Mm. Um, can you move the soundboard out of the thing and still mix here? Can you do this? Can we play in an hour? Can we play just Rhonda and John and I in the, in the atrium? I'd be like, oh my God, you know, and I would, so I was always sort of a, I always described it as being a firefighter. Yeah. We were, you know, I was a firefighter. I was always ready, at, you know, it, to jump down the pole and go out and do the, and go put out the fire. So there was, a, it was a different kind of nervousness, but I wasn't nervous around him as far as a, being a person. Cause we spent so many hundreds and hundreds of hours talking about musicians and mixing and, yeah. and the state of the music and, business and sort of that kind of thing. Absolutely. And in terms of, uh, I agree with you. He was kind of the musician's musician. You know, everybody, mm -hmm. regardless of stature, was a fan. But I kind of get the the impression that he might have been a little afraid of of standing toe to toe with some of these guys. Because if I look at uh, the the path that people find Prince through now, it's usually that while my guitar gently weeps video, and that's yeah. one of the few times where I saw him share a stage with someone uh, you know who was well known in in that case several people. Yeah. where he actually pulled out and delivered mm -hmm. you know and there's the story of uh that michael tells michael bland of steve Vai coming and jamming with him and, and sonny but prince yeah. doesn't want to get involved he doesn't come yeah. down to the soundstage so yeah where do you think he was on that did do you think he was ever frightened of, of standing because i would have loved to have seen him at like the crossroads guitar festival yes. you know and go toe-to-toe -to -toe yeah. with a lot of those blues guys well he wasn't afraid I'll put it this way. He wasn't afraid of anyone when he had his band with him, yeah. when he was performing with his band. Um, and I'm not saying that he was afraid then if he just went on stage with someone mm. that was going to try and trade fours with him, you know, yeah. um, trade four bar solos. Like he, um, I think that it was, this is only my guess, but I would say he was just always in command when he had his band with him. They would go anywhere that he could take them anywhere that no other band could. They just mm. couldn't. But he knew that rock and roll hall of fame band. When we did that whole day was a really tough day for me because he had fired the monitor engineer that morning. So I had to do right. two things at once. I was very busy that day running around. And then there was the time pressure and then all the celebrities are there and all waiting for their turn and trying to get him sound checked and done. And, um, but I remember him not being affected at all by that stuff. I, I, I think he knew that that was a safe band. They were just gonna, they were just gonna play and let him 
this is Prince, man. I don't care if it was Tom Petty. He was like, that's Prince. I'm just going to let him go as long as he wants. Mm. And then they started to come in and say, as you are. They just would do those single lines and let him go. And I was yeah. glad to see that he that he was able to stretch it as long as he wanted. I'd be interested to know how long that solo was. It's got to be hundreds of hours long. Um, yeah. And it was a long, long solo. And he was able to develop a theme. And mm. it felt to me during that solo that he started to develop that he may be bringing it to a conclusion. And then he just never looked back and did one of those, like I'm done. And the mm. band wasn't going to shut Prince down. So he just kept not looking at them. And then he was like, well, I'm just going to keep going. So it was a little mm -hmm. bit of that because we didn't rehearse so, it that long. It didn't rehearse that long for sure. Yeah. So I've, I've got two things absolutely about that. The first one is I've had the, the real mix or the, a different mix of that sound because they have oh. it playing at the rock and roll hall of fame in Cleveland. Oh. It's part of uh, something that Jonathan Demi had put together before before he passed. Um, and you can hear the that. other guitarist, who is uh, Mark Mann, who plays for Jeff Lynne yeah. and ELO. Yeah. You can hear him start to trade licks against what Prince is playing at the end. Mm. Now, that's completely absent of what people hear on the internet. And it sounds like Prince has run out of ideas. And they're, they're just <laughs> going to wrap the song, song up. Yeah. And in reality, he's actually giving space to that guy doing what he's doing. And I, I think it's crucial that it's missing because everybody accused people who are Beatles fans in those comments accuse Prince of, of grandstanding and showboating. Mm. And if they heard the real mix where he, he makes room for the other guitarists to play with him, mm, it, it kind of dispels yeah. all of that. So that that's the, the first thing I did, just felt like mentioning. But the second is a question, the rehearsal. What's the real story of that? Did, did he get trodden over and, and didn't ever actually have a, an opportunity to do the solo? No, I don't think he wanted to do the solo. I think he was just going to leave room for it and then he would know what to do. And they, and he was relying on them to know what to do when he did what he did. Um, right. You don't want to give it all away. And he, you know, he was fully aware of his, he was acutely aware of, of his effect on people and he knew he would be able to do whatever he wanted during that performance. And um, uh, people forget that we had a whole, NPG, we had a whole show that we did. You know, I don't know how long it was, half an hour or maybe longer, maybe an hour show. It wasn't maybe an hour, but we did our own set. And so yeah. that was all at some point, and we had rehearsed it as well, or sound checked it. So I just thought he didn't want to give anything away. Um, mm. They were under time constraints. I know that because I had, I kept hearing from producers, we got to go, we got to go. Yeah. And right. I had to run back and forth out to where the monitor desk was in the hallway and actually change things myself and run in. And I usually never run. I don't think it looks good and it looks professional to run. It looks like there's always a problem. Yeah. Yeah. I always tell I always tell technicians, if you're gonna, if a mic stand breaks, don't run out there, man. Just walk mm -hmm. out and get it and put the new one up and always keep your back to the audience. Don't turn toward yeah. the you know, like there's stuff that just was kind of cool and that I learned from Prince, like how to do it. And yeah. it's not that he taught me that specifically. I just knew. Yeah. You just automatically being around him for a certain amount of time you earned some cool credit right you just knew what to yeah. do and there were certain technicians like magoo mcgregor you know the great magoo magoo knew what to do he just knew what was cool and i remember the time that prince's guitar didn't work at an aftershock didn't work at all he started playing and it didn't work and he just put it down like this and said goo you know and goo came over yeah. and the song's going on and he tells goo in his ear my guitar doesn't work fix it and bring it back to me 
but you can't act like something's wrong. Just be yeah. cool. Yeah. Oh, that makes and sense. He said, yeah. And he said, now, he said, how are you going to fix this guitar? And Magoo said, cool. And he said, right. Now, when I tell you, just laugh. Like I just told you the funniest joke ever. Hmm. And we're both going to laugh about it. So they won't think anything's wrong. And he said, go. And Prince said, like that. And Magoo went, ah, and laughed and walked off stage. It looked like he was just having a conversation with him. Yeah, he yeah. fixed the guitar, brought it back. Prince played the rest of the show, and Magoo got better as a result. Yeah. And Magoo telling me, like, man, he blew my mind tonight. He did this, and he told me, and then I got better because I went, what a great way to cover. It's like and the just, uh, it's like the concept of you know, I'll tell students when you're playing a guitar solo, if you make a mistake, don't roll over to the you know into another note or whatever. Like, don't bring attention that you've effed up. You know what I mean? Don't yeah. give it that extra. It, it's that concept exactly. Yeah, make the mistake. I mean, Van Halen would say it. He would say make mistakes and or maybe it was even uh, some of Prince's band revolution. But, you know, you make your mistakes in twos or fours, you know, you make them in fours and yeah. you can really get away with quite a bit by making mistakes in fours. Yeah. If it looks intentional, <clears throat> if not, it's just a mistake yeah. and the world's just going to keep on a spinning. But yeah. but it, um, I remember seeing Eddie Van Halen live here at uh, either it was at Monsters of Rock at Metrodome years and years ago and it was like metallica van halen i mean it was incredible band scorpions were on scorps were on that one yeah. there were a whole bunch of bands and van halen i was there principally to see them and they played and eddie he goofed up the solo to ain't talking about love now that's a motif that's just a, a very lyrical motif that you just play four times basically yeah. and then he riffed a little well he he screwed up the intro of it and then he did it every single time on purpose yeah. he did it oh, wrong. exactly and then he did yeah. and i just went and i was in the crowd like eight really? and i was like like okay i yeah. learned something else yeah just keep keep amassing that so your students can certainly learn from that okay. just miss yeah go scotty ahead. i've got to ask so when you're saying like that particular gig the monitor guy was fired this and that did, did prince do the firing himself or did he give a look over to someone else to do it or did he have a talk with someone to go out and talk to the monitor he guy talked or? to me he he told me and the monitor engineer's name was mike something and he had done okay. the rehearsal the night before and then he said um i said hey you know mike's gonna mike's gonna run the sound check so he'll be out in that hallway you know he'll be, and he said no i don't want him here you can go tell him to go and i went okay he's like no he's i don't want him and I said, cool. So I walked out in the hallway and I said, hey, just grab your stuff and go. You know, somebody will send you a check or whatever, but he doesn't want you here. And he went, really? And I said, sorry, man. And he went, just lumped his bag and pull, unplugged his headphones and left. Walked right out onto Fifth Ave, wherever we were. Yeah. And Waldorf Astoria or whatever that was, right? Just walked out onto the street right there. And I went, uh-oh. And I, I just somewhere I have a picture of the soundboard. And it might be me. I don't think it's me at the soundboard, but I remember saying, taking out an instamatic camera and taking a picture of it of where it was set up in a hallway like nobody will ever believe this yeah so i had to run back and forth so it was me who had to do the firing but when he got rid of another engineer named gordon mack in 2014 great engineer super great engineer great ears he said no i don't want him back and i was pissed off and because i knew it would make my job harder and um, i've told this story before but i prince said um he said, can't you find me a good engineer? And I said, we just had one, man, you know, and you, but you fire, you know, you fired him. And he said, put his cane down, put his hand around my shoulder and said, I've never fired anyone in my career. They've all fired themselves. Hmm. Now that's the mindset that he had. He never felt like he had ever fired anyone ever that they fired themselves, but that's yeah. just simply not true. 
um, he had fired people and he had gotten rid of people, but he was, he was curving the narrative, you know, in his direction yeah. that it was always them, but he had some really skilled monitor engineers that worked with him and did do a good job and never got the chance to show it all. Do you remember exactly what he, the, he did with his monitor mix or whatever to offend Prince or whatever it was? No, Prince just didn't, didn't feel it one day. And, and Gordon had done many, many weeks with us on okay. musicology. And one day I came in and I looked at my tech, Mark, and Mark just shook it. I said, where's Gordon? He said, just shook his head. And I said, oh, God. Yeah. And he was just gone. I don't know, maybe something, I don't know what happened subsequent or pre prior to that, but I knew it was going to fall on me. So when I was standing next to Prince and he said, they've, they've, all, I've, they've all fired themselves, he, he said, how much time do you need? And I said, I don't know, like 10 or 15 minutes. And so he said, all right, bands, take a break till Scotty's done. And they all went down the stairway and left. And I went over to the desk and I just grabbed the mic and I went two, one, two. And I just started over and I wow. saw all the, all the EQ curve that was going on and these DMV wedges that are beautiful. And I just flattened it all on the digital. I just flattened everyone and went, take a little of this. And I just did it all myself. Yeah. And then he came up and tried it and he said, sounds good. And the desk sat that whole show with no one at it. Wow. The whole gig. No one at wow. the monitor desk. Um, the advent, uh, before we go from the advent of uh, digital boards, so do you have any like nightmare stories of any gigs on the analog boards? Did someone spill beer on it? Did you have a whole bunch of channels blow out? I had one gig in my career. I think that was my mulligan, as they'd like to say in golf. I was at Red Rocks mixing Earth, Wind & Fire. And the show was about to go on. The band was side stage and the playback started. And just when the playback started, the my power supply from my desk blew up, oh. literally blew up. And I looked down and it was on, there were flames coming out of the sides in front of it. And I looked at my tech Bernard and he looked at me, <laughs> he looked at me and he went like that. And just when he shrugged, it went and it made this horrible scream through the PA. And I quick tried to pull down the faders and it wasn't that. So I just jumped and jerked out the, uh, the outputs and it went away. And Bernard has got at Red Rocks, they have um, fire extinguishers. They have like three of them out there. He grabbed one and started putting it out. I grabbed the other. We're spraying this. So front of house is a cloud of smoke. And we didn't have a spare soundboard back then. And the opening act had finished their show and they actually wanted to get ahead of things and they loaded it out. They just pushed the desk down the hill. You have to use a chain and it goes down this hill and then lift it up. And then they, it was already on a truck gone. And I said, we're either going to have to cancel the show or the monitor engineer is going to have to run it from his desk. Just put up a monitor mix, put it into the PA. Let's get the show done. And I talked to the monitor engineer. I quick ran up to the stage through the tunnel. I forget his name, Mike something. I don't want to vilify anyone, but I said, you need to like put your side fills, just put, he said, I'm not doing that. I'll never do that. Well, I'd rather cancel the show than do that. Yeah. And I said, you're serious? And he said, I'm not doing it. I'm not, I'm not responsible. That's your gear. And I remember that division he made between us. And I thought, man, that is the opposite of someone mm -hmm. who's trying to get it done. Yeah. He was supposed to be this veteran sound guy. Right. And, and he just wimped out and didn't want to, didn't want to do it. So I had to watch 9,000 people walk past me and throw beer at me and throw beer at my tech Bernard and just, fill this console with beer and they were all just booing and as they went by and i thought man i didn't do anything to deserve that no one did 
that's what they call a force majeure, right? A, a yeah. act of God. And you just have to, they came back and they, they mixed, they, they played that show uh, six, eight months later. And I offered to come and mix it for free. I said, fly me out there. I'll mix that show for free. Not that it was mm -hmm. my fault. Just thought I'd do the right thing. No, no, we're going to have somebody else mix it. Okay. Oh, okay. So, mm -hmm. so they do happen, but I think what's important more than the failure is what we learn from our failures. Because yeah. most of us, most of us in life aren't lucky enough to be the one in the end zone at the end of the game with the ball or kick that goal at the end of it before it goes into overtime or whatever. Yeah. Um, most of us have had losses in our life and it's how we respond to losses that create all the opportunity for getting better. Yeah. That's where all the, the getting better is, is. And I firmly believe that as a principle architecturally of my life so find the failures and just try and be a little better be a little better than your parents be a better parent than your parents be better at this notice something that's wrong and fix it along the way and learn the lesson tell your kids about it and try and i tell my daughters i say oh as i'm driving i'll go oh pro tip and they always perk up and i said pro tip if you're ever here because they're a couple of years away from driving when you're doing this make sure you're in this lane because then you can get oh okay cool and they make note of it and, you know just trying to see those issues and make and correct them. And I, I think that um, that's something that Prince did. And a lot of artists with whom I've worked have done in their career. They make mistakes. They do a record that doesn't go over with the Chinese audience or whatever. So they have to come back with a record that is more, is more agreeable to the Chinese principles of strengthening the spirit of the Chinese people. And, yep. you know, can't get to, you, you have to pull your audience along as, um, Maurice White once told me, he, you know, he said, I did my first three Earth, Wind & Fire records as simple as I could. Great musicians, but I did it simple. And then I started to slowly draw my audience into disco-y, boogie wonderland stuff. And I knew that what I wanted to do, I just needed to take time to do it so that they wouldn't feel so alienated by a completely different sounding record, right? That's yeah. the true master, a true genius at work, Maurice yeah. White. I'm, I'm going to use that as a segue and it's going to sound incredibly hammy and i know that so <laughs> apologies but prince took us on a musical journey through through his discography and i get incredibly frustrated at this moment in time that the the legacy the the image that keeps getting put out of prince is still purple rain given that the music travels so far away from you know that early early-ish incarnation of him um, how how much have you been keeping up with the posthumous releases? Uh, and also, you know, do you have any thoughts on the legacy as it stands at the moment? Well, for sure, less than less than people think. Um, I, I've been as soon as 2018 came, which was only like what two short years after um, mm -hmm. after he was gone. <clears throat> I started to go to China on a weekly basis. I would commute weekly to China and back for one one show every Saturday night, and so especially 18, 19, 20, I was completely on another planet. Yeah. Almost, Almost I was like an astronaut. Yeah. yeah, I was like an astronaut. Yeah. And, um, and so then the pandemic hits and I didn't really follow it. And, but I've noticed what they put out when they put out One Night Alone live, the vinyl and then the box yep. set, I think it was called Up All Night with Prince or something like that. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> um, I bought, well, no one called me and said, do you want a copy? This is your, this is literally your mix, the whole entire thing. Do you want a copy? You know, I always thought that was funny. Like, 
wouldn't you want a quote from me or some updated thing or whatever? So I went, oh, well, and I ordered them on Amazon and they came and I looked at them and went, oh, good. They left my, they left my essay in the center of it. Great. That's great. And I put them downstairs in my little area, <clears throat> memorabilia area. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. That's about how much I've kept up on things where it affected me. And, and then this idea I have for the, the, the piano and a microphone actually going on tour to affect people in their, not really, I wouldn't say grieving, although it will, I mean, just the autobiographical nature of the show itself will aid people in their grieving. But that's yeah. a really good idea that the, that they should do. Yeah, they could, they could do that. But as far as the just releasing things that have been released before, that doesn't really do anything for me. Sure. Personally. I think. How do you feel? What is your thought? Yeah, I mean, I have to give the, the estate a lot of credit um, because with each passing posthumous release that came out, they included more and more vault tracks, oh, yeah. you know, and the remastering. It's a shame that you haven't heard them, to be honest, because the remastering that they've done on you know, albums that predate your your time with him. So Sign of the Times, uh, 1999, Purple Rain. We'll ignore Purple Rain because it was done by Prince and Josh before before Prince passed. But the, the level- I did hear 1999 and I thought it was astounding. I thought yes. that was really well yeah. done. And they, they and, just earned a lot the, of credit for that, yeah. Yeah, and the quality of the vault tracks that are coming out. I mean, you know, we were led to believe that these tapes weren't looked after very well. I'm sure they weren't. Um, and that a lot of them perhaps have been reused over time as, as you know, due to cost constraints. But the reality is whatever they're managing to do with them, whether it's tech or, I don't know if you could speak to it, but it's fantastic. And the, the quality of the sign of the times, which is, you know, the more recent one is just spellbinding. And the 60 tracks of, of songs that were never released, yeah. which is, you know, an incredible amount for any artist to have written and shelved, but they're, they're absolutely uh, spellbinding to, to actually hear now and I, I'd quite like you to hear them because you were a fan before you even got to yeah. work with him so it, it's, a, it's something that you would find uh, interesting it, because a, a couple of a couple of things come to mind though <clears throat> one is that Prince released everything that he wanted released mm -hmm. okay so that stuff was in the vault for a reason I don't think we should keep playing WWPD because that's not that's no way to treat it um, well, would he want this really? You have to, he's gone. He didn't leave instruction. So you do what you want. That, I believe in that. Um, <clears throat> but I do believe he released what he wanted to release and that an album was an album. It wasn't yeah. 60 tracks. It had to have the impact in, you know, 10 or 11 tracks mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, the second thing is that everyone uh, at, in the family and then the estate and working with the music owes a debt of gratitude to Dave Hampton because mm -hmm. It was Dave's idea and making his idea public about having Iron Mountain step in. I happen right. to know through other people that they listened to Dave suggest that on a podcast. And Dave was very okay. uh, aware of his suggesting that because that is yeah. the place for all of that. Not only music, but <clears throat> music memorabilia, movie memorabilia. Like Iron mm -hmm. Mountain is a truly a mountain of place that does that. I mean, Dave worked Dave, with the Miles Davis uh, estate, so he's he was he's the chief curator of that. Miles yeah. Davis. Yeah, 
estate. And um, so when Don Cheadle needed to learn how to speak like Miles and he needed access yeah. to all these things, Dave is who they went to to unearth that and work with Don Cheadle for that. Dave knows what it takes to store and uh, keep those tapes in great condition. Mm -hmm. Dave went to Prince on many occasions. I was there on one of the occasions at Paisley Park and said, hey, I think we need to think about doing this because these tapes, they would try, the tapes would fray at the end. <clears throat> so to spool them up, you're going to lose something. And if they would break near the end, you'd have to glue on more. And you'd have to, there's a procedure that engineers know. And the tape itself has to be treated afterwards in both cold and heat. You know, they have to do both yeah, to keep them. these tapes. Yeah. And what, what Susan built wasn't, it was a bank vault, kind of, um, with a, with air quotes, climate control in there which was basically a dehumidifier and it was, but it was really a concrete room with a bank vault door on it. It wasn't what you had at Iron Mountain. It was a locked room with a fancy door on it. That's very different than what they have at Iron Mountain where things are kept in varying temperatures due to the wear. They're treated a certain way. Um, <clears throat> I think it was due to Dave coming in, getting the keys to the, the, the vault, so to speak, giving those to Dave on a regular basis, Dave could go in and do what he needed to do to check the condition of the tapes, excuse me. So they would take, take, take tapes out with gloves, inspect them, never bring anything off site, take photographs of the conditions, make note of what tapes were in bad condition. All that stuff was used when it went to Iron Mountain. And I know from the, even the standpoint of cataloging the hundreds and hundreds of hours of hundreds of dats that I turned in to Dave, Every dat that I sent back was was cataloged and chronologically into after shows, into shows. So Dave took that mess that was down there and made sense of it so that when it made its way out in a vehicle all the way out to California or however they got it out there, <clears throat> it was in condition to do those things. Um, it yeah. simply wouldn't have been in that condition without Dave's. Um, you have to know... You have to know not just an engineer. You have to know somebody who's basically a forensic scientist and not mm. care that it's music. They're treating it yeah. as an as a as a an item that they have to curate and keep in condition. And um, it takes real specialists. And Dave's the one that handed that off because what I saw every time I went down there, even when I went down there in early in the early '90s, because I was a drum tech, Prince would say to me, "Go get this song," or "I need the sounds from this song." And he would, um, uh, he would absolutely, uh, the tapes that we that we brought up and put on the reels were in terrible shape. Some of them were in mm -hmm. bad shape. I remember doing sign the song sign of the times and getting the sounds off that. And I remember how good it sounded on two inch tape. You know, it was like 24 track, two inch tape that yeah. we spooled up in the studio and I said, oh, I need that sound. And then I push a fader up and go, I don't know what that, no. Oh, I need that, I need that. And we would just record those <clears throat> the loops or sounds onto a DAT, take the DAT back, put it into an Emacs sampler and then Michael yeah. could trigger those sounds and whatever. Um, but some of those tapes back then were in pretty poor shape. And then they had a flood. Mm -hmm. I mean, they had a flood at Paisley Park before Dave was there and everything in the yeah. vault was, come on, you know, um, I, I look at all of this this way. I'll, I'll end by saying this because I'm getting long-winded. Um, 
to me, what's in the vault, to you, what's in the vault is important. To me, what's in the vault is not important. That's a very big okay. difference. I, um, I think the, to me, the experience with Prince was live. That's what was important. Hmm. Um, and that's gone. So I've sort of been forced to kind of move on and just go in a different direction <clears throat> and think about other things in my career. And, um, uh, other people think that the answers or feel like these, this music is there and it needs to be discovered and want, and they want it. I completely understand that. I a hundred percent understand it and support that because that's what's different about every different person wants something different. Um, but I know that there was, again, Prince released what he released on purpose and didn't release what he didn't want released on purpose. So I wouldn't yeah. want to be the arbiter or the, the, the person saying, this is going to be released, that isn't. It's too easy to say release it all. And I say, hey, if you want to really do the right thing, put everything out, hmm. put all of it out for free on a streaming thing, or get really savvy and ask some billionaire to fund a new tech platform that, that like the one I tried to have with Jason Franzen in 2012, invited Jason up, this mobile strategist friend of mine, really creative guy and put together an app for Prince that all of his music could be released on that app. Yeah. It was called one gig, O-N-E-G-1-G, one gig. And he, right. we did a presentation for Prince and he was all into it. And then he just shut the door on it a month later. And I thought, mm -hmm. man, there it is. Why not release all your own stuff, all the vault stuff? Why not just release it on your own platform? Yeah. It's easy. It could be done in one day. Yeah. But yeah, that's I something kind of... revolutionary Prince would do. He wouldn't release yeah. it just through the streaming platforms. And so that guaranteeing basically his family's making no money on it. Somebody is, yeah. but not him. So it's just how I, I mean, I, I could, I could go a hundred different directions here because I, I spoke to one of his relatives and, mm -hmm. who, you know, was on the younger side of, of the family and suggested that there was an app route that could be done, particularly around celebration. Yes. Because you know, not everyone can stump up $4,000 to fly in and accommodate and rent a car and go see three days of Paisley. Yes. You know, there's hundreds of thousands of people around the world who would pay $100 to do it virtually. And it's far more lucrative to do that. Um, yes. But that kind of hit a dead end. It might in the future go somewhere. Um, but this, this idea of would he want it released? I don't know. I go back and forth. I think everything that you laid down to take has merit from a you know because i let me bring it back a step i think this is the hardest working man that i know of in history and i, I don't know whether you would counter that because you were closer to him and I'm, I'm just looking from a thousand feet away but i think it's a work ethic that is vastly underappreciated and if if anything the legacy i want him for him is the music and the work ethic in equal in equal standing because i mean tell me if, if if i'm wrong but i i don't know anyone who's who's created that much output over that length well, of time probably js bach would would be a good first start <laughs> recorded <laughs> talking, you know <laughs> uh, yeah recorded um that's recorded too just in musical notes so mm -hmm. it does exist and and uh, that's all open source that's all free now so yeah. um <clears throat> eventually it all gets there but um but as far as yeah his work ethic was one that I think the angle you have, it's, it, it depends on your angle of approach. If we look at him as, you know, I know Susan said like we're mere mortals and he was this, I think to me, I don't approach it from that way. 
I just say he was possessed in a different way, which cost him huge shortcomings in his personality and his life yeah. to be able to do this. So mm -hmm. while most of us would be mere mortals compared to his creative musical artistic output, there are plenty of us who had our poop in a group way more as people with interpersonal relationships, the way we treated our employees and, and coworkers, <clears throat> with people that regarded people as far as their time and their energies, with people that understood and worked together with people to teach them, to people that want to teach a new generation of how to do it like that person. There are, yeah. so yes, and, <clears throat> yes, and yeah. it cost him in other ways. So if we're just talking about a voluminous output of musical artistic content creation, yeah, he was almost without peer in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. But talking about being a successful person and having balance, which is my favorite word, and it has to do with what I do for a living, mm -hmm. I don't think he was balanced as a person. Clearly, no. if anybody taking an objective look would say that wasn't a balanced person. So what he did is he took from one bank and gave it to another. So if, yeah. whether or not we measure that as success, well, then if that's your thing, then that you, you're welcome to that. I tend to be a fan yeah. of people that really can be creative and put things out and kind and uh, respectful of time and energy and effort and want to teach others. And I, I have, I, what I value isn't what you value as far as prints. Uh, so we're going to differ in those things, or I'm going to differ from Susan, agree yeah. with her in some respects and disagree with on a bunch more. But it just has to do with what you want out of it. And my thing is, I don't want anything out of it. I, uh, except yeah. for, if I may say one thing at least, that, that fans get what they want. So that's why I say, release it all for free. There's my yeah. weak gauntlet that I've thrown down. Can you release it all yeah. for free? No? Okay, then there's something in it. And, and then we have to just come to terms with that. And I agree with that too, because mm -hmm. people want to make a living. They have to look after the family members. There's, you know, things, you know, yeah. I wouldn't go on a tour with Kirk and that piano show for free, yep. right? You can bet that. Exactly. So, yes, yeah. we all have self-interest involved, but I do believe that Prince, his work is important enough to get out to people that just want to hear it. So I'm in, yeah. I'm a fan of everyone hearing everything. Yeah, and I think there's there's ways to do that where it doesn't break the bank for the listener and it provides a decent income for all involved in the estate. Right. I mean, you know, if you took the Netflix model and has all of the recorded, you know, studio work, let's call it, for want of a better phrase, um, but every Friday night we're going to premiere a live performance, you know, right. so it keeps people on the hook for, for yeah, that monthly yeah. amount. It could yeah. work. It, of course it could work. Um, I would I would argue slightly, I mean, I, I get completely that, you know, he took chips from one side of the table and put them all on the, I'm going to give myself to music pile. Mm -hmm. But I kind of, and it, this speaks partly to, to why I think Susan thinks this way. I see it like an athlete. You know, you kind of, you age yourself out of being able to do what you've done. And then you go have the wife, kids, and the, you, you, you know, get grounded a little bit. You learn how to take the trash out. You know, that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. Once you've had this, this peak in your, in, in your life, but I don't think 
you know, he's one of the, the few where he never really stepped off that treadmill of, you know, create, tour, do all of the things because he was hyper creative. I don't think yes. he aged in a, in a musical career in the same way someone like Billy Joel did, you know, where Billy right. Joel has found this wonderful sweet spot where he's still ridiculously rich, where he doesn't have to create new music and he plays mm -hmm. when he wants to. Prince never really had that. And I think had he, and you know, maybe we can point to 1996, right? Maybe if the, the baby hadn't passed, maybe he would have found a different trajectory and had that, you know, home life and, you know, taking kids and dropping them off at nursery and things like that would have forced that upon him. So I, I don't know. I mean, it, we could speak for a hundred hours about this kind of stuff because it's life choices. But I think well, what, what it gets down to fan, it, it, that's like a fan fiction. It's almost yeah. like like one of my daughters is really into like Stranger Things fan fiction, right? Yeah. The, you know, fans come up with all sorts of arcs and storylines about what would happen, and that's what you're doing for him, and mm -hmm. and which is beautiful because it's you're writing, you're you're coming up with a, a, a an arrangement, a, a creation, mm -hmm. you know, a structured creation that you're coming through. If only this, right, whatever. Yeah. And um, I, I don't think it's a stretch to say he was a deeply deeply flawed person. Who came up with incredibly good music, but um, I get in trouble every time I'm asked if he's going to be heard in two thousand two hundred years, because I always mm -hmm. say no. <clears throat> I don't think he will. I think I think his music. Now Susan would disagree for sure, but his music is going to time out. We can't even mm -hmm. get through. You can't even subscribe to a physical newspaper anymore, because by the time it's delivered, by the time the next day of it's blowing into the street gutters of the streets the next day it's old news when it gets delivered to you so how do you think we're mm. going to launch into our voracious appetite of music we're going to launch right past that unless you have somebody really doing a good job and it is nailed in like the beatles are to the architectural foundation it depends on the job the the the, the uh estate does and how and the family actually yeah and what they yeah. do and the decisions that primary wave makes and how yeah. many are they going to, they're going to sell to Chevy. They're going to sell little red Corvette mm. to Chevy. Are they going to do this? How are they going to keep him out there, but then continue to have him not get, be get, gotten tired of? It's all a balance. Yeah. And, it's, it's a massive and, balance. Yeah. yeah. And to me, the reason I'm uninterested in it is not because I don't like Prince or didn't like his music. It's just that I personally mm -hmm. didn't make the choice to, but I grew past having to care about it because my role in his career was to make it, turn it on, turn it up and make it sound yeah. good and affect the fans. And I still want to give that to fans, but my, remember a huge part of what I did is now gone. An mm. element of what I needed to work with is gone. I can't just show up at a gig and play the whole gig without him showing up. I can yeah. in the case of this piano tour. And that's what I yeah. proffered as being the thing that I could help affect people with that. But I can't go back and Mix one night alone live, again. It, who no, but the if, interest? if the estate came to you and said, uh, because you know, my my belief is that the only person who can really publicize Prince is Prince. He's the only promotional tool. Mm -hmm. Show him live, and there isn't a single person in the world who, who won't be biting on that that hook. But every other way of promoting him isn't going to work because you're missing the key element, which is him. So if, I, if the estate came to you and said, we want to do the ultimate live compilation 
uh, multi-tier box set yeah. to show and really put this out. The kind of thing that you know radio are going to snap up and yeah. streaming services, wherever it might be, in, in conjunction with a Netflix documentary ten part or something like that. Right. If they said to you, would you mix? Would you? Would you have to? Like, or are the tapes good enough that they wouldn't no, even need I, to ask you? They'd I would like, say that, that my involvement would be directly relative to what it means to have that out. Mm. Because I've already explained that I am fully aware that every cent that I don't even have to know you and Brian well enough to know that money you made seven years ago, you don't have anymore. Well, that's not true, actually. <laughs> not with this guy. Then you, but then you're doing something better than I am. But <laughs> I'll, all right, let me let me come at it from a different way because that clearly didn't work. Because and then at, off air, you got to tell me what I need to do. But <laughs> but we can't. <clears throat> we simply can't have financial remuneration of something in perpetuity. Would that be a fair thing to say? Yeah. Unless you unless your money makes money, and if it's and, and then it gets to the, the dirty degree to me of just being about money. That's why I say it's not about the money. If it's not about the money and it's for the fans, then release all of the vault free. What's mm. the problem? And what you'd say is, what's the problem? And then you'd have the family members and their attorneys and primary wave people. Yeah. They would all go like this at each other. And the only answer they could say is because it doesn't make us money. And if yeah, that's yeah. your reason, then... You're already on the wrong side of my argument. You yeah. already differ from me. I say give it all yeah. out for free. But the reason Prince could give it out for free in the past, and I encouraged him to do so when Pearl Jam came out with, uh, they gave away their album free and then they toured. And I told mm -hmm. him about that. I said, You hear about Pearl Jam? They're touring. They gave out their record and they tour live. And that's where they make their money. Yeah. Mm. And that was, Prince could have done that. He could what year would that have been when you had that concert? Uh, 2002, I think, when we had that. Because I, I seem yeah. to remember that being around the time that we talked about buying a PA. Um, but the idea and is And you don't, that, you don't think that that directly influenced his musicology idea? Uh, I don't know. Because in effect, he did, he did give it away, didn't he? Uh, maybe, well, I don't know. I ne I've never thought about that. But maybe now, maybe, maybe now that makes sense. I don't know. I wouldn't claim that anyway, but I no. never thought about that until you said that. But if you give away your music for free, then you just go and back it up by having stunning live performances. Yeah. But because but because most people can't perform live anymore like that, they they have to make the music on the on the releases. They simply have to. Yeah. It's the only way they can do it, yeah. right? Yeah. I think so anyway. I mean, I've I've kind of come to the same conclusion as you about the longevity. I think the way that we're going now, he won't be remembered um, unless they do something remarkable where they do start putting a lot of this live footage out into the ether. Yes, yes. So that uh, if you're a young kid on YouTube, you're going to find this stuff and it's it's always going to be found because, you right. know, greatness rises to the top, the cream comes to the top. Yeah, yeah. But I think, certainly for me, we're going to time out. I mean, I'm, I'm early 40s. A lot of fans, you know, didn't hit mu musical puberty in the 90s. They hit it in 1977 and were perfectly timed yeah. to, to take him in. They're right. not That's getting any point. younger. Yeah. They're going to start dropping off the mortal coil. At that point, where's the new generation coming from? If all they can they can do is bring up bootlegs and, and 
iPhone footage from as, as good as it was, you know, some 2011 gig. So I think the, the, there needs to be a concerted effort. It's, it's all, well, they can milk me till I'm dry with remasters and vault tracks of, of things mm -hmm. I already know better than I know my own hand. Right. But how do you bring new people in? And how do you get that? This is the greatest live performer I've ever witnessed. That's a super good ether. question. And that's, that's the, the battle that they're up against. Because yeah. if you don't get that treadmill of new people finding him and having the material to find him, he's not going to be remembered in 100 years. And it's strange when I see someone like Jimi Hendrix, where, I mean, like literally how much could the guy have recorded in such a oh, short yeah. amount of time? But they're still knocking out box set after box set after box set. But it's only to the diehards. It never finds someone who's never heard of him and, and opens them up, or very few people. Yeah. And I think that's the, the, the territory that we're at risk of going into, especially if he's always this 24-year-old, you know, telling Apollonia to go jump in the lake. <laughs> it's like, this isn't Prince. This, this yeah. wasn't the Prince that I went to see from yeah. 98 uh, from my first gig onwards. Yeah. Where's the Coachella Prince? Where he's the picture of health. He's a, he's a grown man. Yeah. You know, there isn't a load of misogyny going on that yeah. doesn't play very well. So I think it's it's a very difficult time. I've, I've got a lot of patience for the estate because yeah, good. You know, nobody wanted uh, there to be no will and all of the, the legal wranglings and everything that goes with that. But at some point, the patience is going to run drier amongst fans where we need more consistent releases. And we also need a 10-year, 20-year target. What yeah. is the image that you want him to look like? Because I would like people to see Coachella Prince when they think of Prince instead of the kid from Purple Purple Rain. Right. Anyway, off my soapbox. No, I, I uh, that see, now you kind of, I think that we're on the same page about all that. And it's it's all about how do you grow how do you grow the model when the model itself is changing the model of how we operate is changing, everything is streaming. Think about yeah. this. Prince didn't even see that. That's crazy, right? He didn't mm -hmm. see full streaming and 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 physical models go down like the physical sales just drop mm -hmm. off. I mean CDs. When somebody hands me a CD now, I go, what am I supposed to do with this? My laptop doesn't play it. My hum my hum I don't have it at home. I mean <clears throat> it's all on the phone. And when he I mean, knew you it could, was coming, because you could he, see him he, playing with it though, with with Third Eye Girl and doing the live streams yeah. with them, you know. And yeah, it, I, have you heard of NFTs? You know this crypto. Yes, of course. Yeah, thing? I think he'd have been the perfect test bed for that. You know, has new material. It, it's basically the MPG Music Club that you could wrap up in a digital token, right? And it, it's everything. Has your concert ticket? Has your membership? as your access to the thing that we did in the studio this morning. And I think he, he would have been a perfect pioneer to, to push yes. that kind of stuff forward. You know, the I wouldn't be is, surprised if there was, you know, a few bits of Bitcoin on his computer or something, you know, because he, he always did keep a, 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 an ear to the ground of what was happening tech-wise. Yeah, if he felt inundated, if he felt overwhelmed, though, he would pull out fully right. <clears throat> um, with tech. So I happen to know that just from our, arguments over digital versus analog. And when he told me, you're going to make sound analog, right? I said, no, I'm going to make digital, you know? And then mm -hmm. I, I told him, I'm, I don't tell you what guitar to play. It's just my choice. 
you know, you can play whatever guitar you want. Let me mix on whatever I want. It's the, the, it's the idea of getting the music out. And I said, oh man, when I called him a legacy act, you know, that didn't go over so well. And I said, you're a legacy act, meaning he already has a legacy. He's continuing yep. it, but he didn't see it like that. He, but I, I was honest, at least I said, you're a legacy act. I have to make sure everything sounds exactly like it did on the record. Cause mm -hmm. you're going to remember, you're going to remember party up way different than you are party man. They sound mm -hmm. totally different. Yeah. Yeah. So don't make me give just an analog mix of the whole show and then fans come and go, well, all, it all kind of sounded the same. So mm -hmm. I was able to, I was able to make all the songs sound exactly like they did on their respective records due to that. So he, but he never walked up to my desk and he never touched it. He would walk up and look at what I was doing, but yeah. he didn't ever touch my desk. And I'm part, part of that I'm proud of. And part of it, I wish he would have said, Hey, so how do I do this? Yeah. And I go, okay, just hit select. See SEL, just hit SEL. Now you're looking at the base yeah. channel. What do you want to do? Right. That would have been the cool yeah. guy thing to do. I think is to say, yeah. how are you doing this? And why is this a good advantage? And how are you setting yeah. the echo times? Oh, I can tap them in right here. Oh, how did you do that whole lot of love drop echo? Oh, I did it with this. So he loved mm -hmm. technology when it was on his side, when he had to do it himself and he didn't know, he would go, no, I love boss pedals. And you go, yeah. yes, we all love boss pedals, but they sound like hundred dollar boss pedals. Like it, what mm -hmm. if I could do the same thing and it sounded 3d audio or it sounded like mm -hmm. it came out stereo like this. If it was too much tech for him, if it was more than mute and unmute, he didn't want to do it. So and that is, yeah. Sorry, Scott, please go ahead. No, no, that, that's a good place for you to okay. jump in on. Um, so one of my burning questions for you, I kind of touched on this with Susan, but because she wasn't really the live uh, mixing sound engineer uh, for live performance, I kind of tried to get into this a little bit in our conversation with her. But so obviously then you embraced when the analog boards went to digital. Yes. And um, did you find, so sometimes with Prince, you didn't know what his arrangements were going to be or how many... Uh, uh, musicians would be on stage or his horns. I couldn't imagine trying to mix that, but I'll ask you about that in a bit. But did it help with the digital boards? Like, did you have a setting where you could kind of save it roughly to what he likes and, and then change it a bit to the yes. to the acoustics of the different venue and just tweak? Did it make your work a lot easier doing that, like with the save function? Scene three for me on every console I work on now, scene three says line check, always. I skip one and two. So I start at scene three, line check. The next one under it is always sound check. The one under that says safety. Okay, so if all the crap hits the fan, I can always re recall scene five and do the rest of a show on it. With Prince, below safety came funk, and the next one under that came ballet. Hmm. So what I would do is if he said, I want to play scandalous, I would load ballad. It would load up the ballad reverbs. And then I would just make moves based off of that and then store it as scandalous down at number 71 or whatever. <clears throat> I always started with sort of a template. And the template is one that I left him with in the rehearsal room when I left at night. So I would always leave it on funk. And I'm sure he walked over to my desk and saw like funk, you know, or whatever. And um, and that that name of that has was different at different times. Uh, sometimes it would say, it would just say room. And then the other one would say ballad, you know, and I changed the name of that, right. but it started as funk. Like with Prince, it was zero, zero, whatever it was, zero, zero, 
six or seven, was, seven, seven, nine, yeah, three, yeah, 11. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I would just leave it as um, I would leave it on, on a standard thing. And then he, like, mm. Oh, I want an effect there. Can you do some cool vocal effect? Sure. And then I would quickly go up to 78, store it as a new song. And what song are we working on? He'd say, uh, it doesn't have a title. Okay. And then I would go, how about this? And he would go check one. And I would do this check one. Yeah. That. And then, like we would work on things and I would start to amass this list, master list of all the songs. And that's not lazy mixing. It's smart. You know, if yeah. you want purple rain, you want it to go purple rain, rain, purple rain, rain, right? You have to have right. that echo yeah. on his voice. It has to be there. It has to be right. Um, pop life, you know, songs that got really started to get intricate. P Parade had a bunch of reverbs, backward sort of reverse gated. Ver I couldn't, no one could do that real time without dragging half the studio along with them yeah so so using an, a digital console only turned the sound into you know it's still a sine wave it's just a stepped sine wave that's really 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 high resolution so hmm. i his fear of digital was his fear of technology yeah they moved hand in hand i don't yeah. want to go to digital why because he didn't know how to go from page to page yeah he just didn't. He tried it. I'd seen it. I would leave it for him, even as recently as a piano and microphone show after we did that. But before we went to Australia, he we were rehearsing for Australia. And I would leave his Yamaha C7 S uh, C C7 S SH or whatever, C7X SH silent piano and the four speakers in the corners and my small QL one, the one I was going to use over in in uh, Australia. I left it set up exactly what I was going to do. And I would come and it would be all messed up. Like he didn't know what he was doing and things would be channels would be broken as a pair and it would be all like crazy. He, he feared technology, but he okay. seemingly somehow seemed like he was on the edge of it in other parts of his life. Like mm -hmm. how to digitize, how to digitize assets and get them to people. Right. Yeah. yeah. So he was just like a Gemini. We're coming full circle there was do as I say, not as I do. And that was sort of him in a nutshell. I'm just, yeah. I want you guys to know that I'm just candid enough to say that yeah. and not yeah. just, just fall all over him because no, no, I, appreciate I think there are lessons in there and they're yeah. not mm -hmm. mine to possess. They're mine to give out the open sourcing of his mindset and yeah. calling his, shortcomings as they were he would call out mine yeah, yeah. if it fed back he would yell my name or yeah. if he didn't yeah. like something he would blame me so why don't we keep each other accountable for things now granted he's not here to defend himself no but he mm -hmm. would do the same in reverse too so i just think yeah. that if you start with honesty and candor you know there's a difference you know you can be honest yeah. and not candid but i'm always honest and i'm almost always candid i'll just tell you what i think and like what should be done, what should have been done and how it should have been you know, handled or how it could be handled. And the same as you, you've got candor about what the estate could do and how, the, how stuff mm -hmm. could be um, released and a beautiful way for a fan experience to, to, to ingest that material that, that's prized by you, you know, wanting to hear. Mm -hmm. And so, I'm in support of that. I think they should hear everything. So your yeah. favorite live mixing board is right now currently would be a, Yamaha Rivage. It's, it's, it's where we were on that. We were, I, when I moved prints from analog to digital and I did that in live audio. So I used 
in 2002, all the stuff on One Night Alone Live was recorded on through a Midas console, a British oh, yeah, console, they're a, Midas, awesome. a Midas XL4. Oh, Huge wow. boat anchor, heavy. They can get full of dust, but they had great preamps. Did all that on the Midas, um, which made some of those vocal moves and, and harmonizations and stuff in family name and things like that all the more remarkable because I had to do this dance of having things change quickly. Um, when I moved, we took a break on that tour and then I went to a Yamaha PM1D. Wow. Another big, huge first iteration of digital console, but I could lock in all the songs. Recall, let's go crazy. Recall, take me with you. Be at the end of whole lot of love where it's just going, wow, wow, wow. Yeah. And then John counted off, take me with you. And I could hit recall mm -hmm. and it would all go away and it would go, wow. you know, so that was only possible because of that transfer to digital and it, it made my life easier and allowed me to listen more and make refinements more than problem solve with an analog desk. Um, Yamaha has advanced their technology. And again, they're the only manuf manufacturer that makes grand pianos and horns and keyboards and world-class instruments. Like all these Steinway artists, they're all defecting to Yamaha CFX now. That's crazy. Classical pianists. Are, yeah. are saying see a sign way yamaha's better mm. and that and they make sound consoles so who am i going to go with the most musical console i can so Absolutely, i like the rivage yeah. i'm not a yamaha artist and i'm not sponsored by them they don't really do that for engineers but it gives me the most musical advantage to start with and then to also multi-track is very easy so i'm creating digital assets so in the future you know artists won't have to deal with just a two-track mix of a, a tour they'll have they can go in and remix it and remaster it. And, you know, it makes me think of somebody like, uh, like for example, we hear remixes and we hear people kind of brought back with different production. And I always wondered why this is an off, this is parenthetical to the conversation. But yeah. when I listen to Whitney Houston, she's mm. got such a beautiful voice. And the production is so horrendously aged in the 80s. Yeah. Right? With, with these yeah. belly David Foster Rhodes sounds and these out of date instrumentation. Why somebody has why her estate hasn't done that and hasn't put a new band behind have Greg Fillingage or somebody put a band behind that and play and release her stuff again? I have no idea why. Yeah, I mean even um, Taylor Swift is is re-recording re all of her stuff because she yeah. had a beef with that guy and so yeah, she's yeah. going to put it all out and get her fans to only follow that stuff. Uh, the Whitney fans have that option. Prince, you could have people go back in and do things and yeah. Well, I mean if you've got access to the tapes, of course you can. I mean I, I'm a big uh, proponent at the moment of this AI movement where it's, it's almost the computers trying to pull the vocal out, pull the bass out, mm -hmm. you know, because that's the closest I'm going to get. Nobody's going to let me at the tapes, you know, but right. if I want to break down, you know, uh, wherever it might be, uh, then if I can do it using a computer and they're getting pretty good. I mean, they're, they're terrible really good. In, in, you know, reality, but they're getting, you know, what they're getting good at Chris where, is the, yeah. is auto mixing live shows. So you can turn on auto mix features that will listen to a recorded track or a live track that you want it to sound like and shape the EQ and turn things up and down so that you get super, super close. Um, <clears throat> Yamaha is kind of on the front of that technology as well. So auto mixing live is coming as well. And it, all it is is a guarantor of live show success. Right now, mm -hmm. if you want wow. it to sound like the record, you have to hire somebody like me who will do all the work and figure it out work with musicians, not offend their sensibilities, say, hey, I need you to do this. Wouldn't it be cool if this, and then they try it and go, oh yeah, that does work. And then kind of 
CPR it out into something that works in a big room, right? And remains tight. Um, when you have software to do it, you can just hit auto mix and it will match every song to how you want it to sound. And that's coming. That will come sooner or later. Yeah. I, I think all the tech disrupts. It's the people who can work with the tech mm. that ha mm. has disrupted who yeah, take it right. on that level. I mean, you, you know, let's take it full circle. If, you, if you're Bobby in the revolution and the Lindrum arrives, you sink or swim, right? Because you that's might be exactly out of the right. job. But look at what he managed to do in wrangling mm -hmm. that. And that paved the way there that we didn't lose drums. They, there's now he, a place for he both, was both he's way more important in the history of music and drummers than anyone for which he will ever be given credit because mm -hmm. he was the drummer that had a gig was going to be replaced by that and mm -hmm. took it upon himself to educate himself and figure out how to become one with a machine he was essentially yeah. the six million dollar man and he became yeah. part machine part live and and that you just can't, he has a lot to say about that. And that's who your, Brian, your student should be listening to somebody like Bobby Z. He'd be a great guest on the show because it's about how to take that Indiana Jones. I talk about the skull and the bag of sand. Yeah. We're doing yeah. that in life, real time. Like, yeah. how do we, oh, now we're streaming, you know? Oh, yeah. now I don't have to, oh, now I have all my apps on my phone. Oh, yeah. now I cut the cord with my cable yeah. company. You know, we're all I'll, doing I'll, that now. I'll say it now because I don't know whether I'll get the chance to later. But the myth around Prince is that he's this one-man band who just came along and he was an unstoppable force and he always would have been a success regardless in any age, in any era. But the reality is there's these massive turns of luck, the timing, the amount of money in the recording industry, you know, race relations that yes. an artist who could say, don't make me black, is actually listened to, whereas Little Richard wouldn't have been listened to. Prince comes along at a time where he is listened to. All of these things, like meeting Roy Bennett, meeting yourself, Dave Hampton coming along at the right time. There's so much luck that has gone into the career in the background that I think the more, I, I treat it almost like a historian it looks at this thing and just wants to put it down on paper now because I'm so familiar with the music that this is what keeps it interesting to me. Is yeah. this looking at the weaving in the tapestry is actually where I get my joy now. You know, if this guy hadn't said that thing, we wouldn't have this song. If he didn't use that lyric, it wouldn't have informed this. If he didn't meet so-and-so, it wouldn't have come. Like, you know, I, I'm not going to say it's absolutely, and, and I'll, I'll state it as fact, but you having that conversation with him and then him giving away the musicology CV does seem more than a coincidence, you know, on face value to me. So I just think it's it's a fantastic study. And I understand he's flawed as a man. And I actively push against people who are deifying him at the moment mm -hmm. because he's passed. I think it's a disservice to everyone involved, particularly the music, if you turn him into Jesus after he's gone. But I think what he did release studio-wise and, and what he did do on the live uh, circuit this is a record that everybody should have access to. And I don't know whether they have access to it free, but they sh it should certainly be out there in the ether so that it finds new listeners. Mm -hmm. Now, to bring it slightly full circle, because I don't know how we're doing with time, um, can I ask you about the piano and a microphone? Sure. And, and I don't want to ask about the end. I want to ask about who came up with the idea and at what point 
did you walk into a room and see a solo piano? And how did that feel to, to, to think, oh my God, he's stripping himself right back? Um, <clears throat> I got called in November of 2015 on the last day of a tour <clears throat> that I had with the fray. And Kirk, I saw Kirk's name and I said, perfect timing, you know. And I said, hey, and he said, hey, he wants to talk to you. I said, I fly in tomorrow. I'll go right from the airport to Paisley Park. <clears throat> Pardon me, please. And he wanted the band, he had a new record out. It was like, wasn't it uh, hit, and, hit and Run, hit and run one two. or or, yeah. or something or two? Yeah, whatever. Wonderful. And, um, <laughs> and um, so he was into that. And I know there was this uh, gig on the horizon, this um, uh, New Year's Eve gig for Roman Abramovich, you know, in yeah. St. Barts. Yeah. Um, so that was going to happen. There was another ill-fated gig in Miami that was supposed to happen. And I okay. knew it wasn't going to happen. And Prince told me it wasn't going to happen. But I had to act like it was still going to happen in case he wanted to do it. So I was ready to do a site survey and fly down to Miami and just look at this place. And then the plug got pulled on that. And the next thing I know, Kirk didn't really say anything. I just noticed he started playing his piano and at rehearsal. And um, Kirk at some point said, I think he wants to do a show just for a few people on piano. So it started really innocuously. It wasn't a big thing. It just sort of grew. And um, I wasn't in on the planning stages or any of that. I just, I built the stage for him. I think I built a what had to be, it was like, a, I think 12 by 16, whatever the size of the piano. I just mm -hmm. said, okay, bigger, it's got to go, he's got to be able to walk around. And so I built him a 12 by 16 and put a ramp down in, uh, at first it was a ramp that went through the open doors. And then he said, mm -hmm. no, I want the doors to open and shut mm -hmm. and smoke to come out. Oh, okay. So I had to build a stairway instead because the ramp went, it was too close to the, you know, all those right. little things had to be worked out. But next thing I know, we're doing a show and it was promoted and fans were getting ready and come over. And, and then we spent the night before the piano show talking about the set list. It was just Prince and me at Paisley Park. It was several hours and uh, I stayed down below him and he would play and then just look down and I'd say, okay. And I made sure he could see my writing because he was always private about notes and things getting mm -hmm. out, especially if they're digitized. That's why I always wrote things down by hand next to him. Yeah. So I'd say, okay, and then, you know, oh, okay, go into this and then da da da. Okay, then, or then Raspberry Beret. Okay, cool. And I was kind of making all these furious notes about what I was furiously writing them down. <clears throat> but I didn't get a chance to, I didn't understand that he was going to talk interstitially about his life. He mm -hmm. never told me that. So the next night when I did the smoke machine and two guys opened the door and Prince walked through with a yellow light behind him, the door shut and stopped the smoke machine and, you know, I put on that that effect. I don't know. Were you at the show? No, no. So, Unfortunately, I've he, heard it, obviously. He, yeah. he comes up and he goes, Paisley, 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 Paisley. And yeah. I did the act. And he he said, believe that effect you you like. Put that on there until I do the Batman theme. So we have sort of had a play, like a sports play. Okay, I'm going to do yeah. that in this. What do you want me to do for this? He's like, whatever. I just do. Okay, should I match the something in the water? Does not compute echo? He's like, whatever you want. I was like, cool. So it's very easy going. Did that show. He gave me the shout out during the show. Told me after the show, after the first show, he said, you go ahead and get a copy of that. Thank you uh, from the video guys. And I was like, cool, that's nice. Didn't look at that with the, the, the scope with, of 
anything because he thanked me a lot in the PA or at least brought me up. You know, Prince fans yeah. know Scotty turned up Scotty. Yeah, yeah. But for him to call me on the phone in studio and say, you should probably get a copy of that. Thank you from the video guys. And wow. I said, oh, cool. Thanks, man. Um, I didn't put, I, I, I'm not reading into that. I'm just saying that was mm. highly different. That was very mm. unlike. So got a copy of that. Um, we went on the, we rehearsed for Australia. Kirk tried to sort of talk him out of Australia. He's like, hey man, that was lightning in a bottle. Let's go back to doing the band thing for a while and then right. you can do it later. And he had a conversation with Kirk. He respected Kirk immensely in his opinion. Mm -hmm. And Kirk wanted to keep us all busy working on this, you know, because he had the band rehearsing and had a new record out. Nope, yeah. he wanted to go to Australia and, and New Zealand. Okay, let's do it. So we went, just Kirk, Prince and me went to Australia. And so that's kind of how it, it happened, but it happened very quickly. And yeah. because I was used to doing after shows and strange shows for him, or a show at his house, or I'd fly out to LA and just tell, call Dave Hampton ahead of time and say, I need this desk and these mics. Get out there, quickly do it, do the show, go home. You know, that kind of stuff happened all the time. I didn't look at the piano show as being extremely different from anything weird that we were already doing. Yeah. Um, so uh, as you so as this show is being put together, would you hear him rehearsing? Were you there as throughout the rehearsal? Sure. Uh, sure. What did you he think of, of he, he didn't the actual piano playing? Him. The only night he rehearsed in front of me was a little bit the first day I heard him playing piano, mm -hmm. talking about the piano show. Then the night before, he did a full rehearsal, almost like a rundown, and he would get into the song, and then he would stop um, a little ways into the, let's say he, say he was playing Raspberry Beret. He didn't say he was going to talk about Lisa. But right. he would play Raspberry Beret, and as soon as you work in pot, he would start it, and then he would stop, and then he would look at his notes and play a little bit, and then play up into a different key, and then go, "Don't worry about that." Okay, and then he would, and then he would play a little bit more and flourish a little bit until he got to the right key. So what he was doing was prepping himself to change keys in that way. Yeah. What happened when the show came is that he threw all that out the window, and then like kind of. He had a set list, but he would bounce around a little bit. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see my set list that I have of his, that I have of mine that night mm -hmm. that I did on a computer and balance it with what played. actually happened. Yeah. yeah. Just yeah. to see what he switched around. But wow. um, he was, uh, the autobiographical nature of the show wasn't apparent to me until we were actually in the show. And he yeah. talked about people and certain things. And then he gave me a shout out for sound. And he talked about Lisa and talked about, David Bowie briefly and, yeah. and um, different people in his career and life. And, you know, that, so, but it wasn't, I wasn't back there going, Whoa, this mm. is incredible. I just knew it was like, this is different. I've never heard him mm. talk about himself this much. Yeah. And then I, I think Kirk that might've been right. Don't you? Because as that tour carried on, he got less and less autobiographical. hundred percent. And a, a show, that, you know, I, I believe Kirk, was absolutely right. And I'm not mm -hmm. sorry he did it, um, but something happened when Vanity was lost, yeah. when, when when Denise died, that changed that whole tour. And it really got sour for me. Um, mm -hmm. He was, that happened, I think, really fairly early in the tour. It might've been right away. Yeah, February, wasn't it? Yeah. And so it went sideways for me because then I was his only target. He couldn't target mm -hmm. John Blackwell. He couldn't target... 
any other musician, any other monitor engineer, whatever. I was really the, and Kirk was smart enough to make himself scarce. Mm. So I was his only target. And I was okay with, I mean, I mean, I, I was okay with that. I didn't mind. I'd been used to having little skirmishes and that's fine, but it was sort of ruthless and it was sort mm. of, um, uh, I was trying to show him that I wasn't trying to, I just wanted to solve it and get on with the next thing. We had said, Hey man, we got good shows and good. Um, what do you call it? Uh, reviews. critical reviews. Yeah. What, what, what's the, where's the, why, why all the acrimony? I think I said that to him at some point, like why all the acrimony? Like what, yeah. what, what's going on? And so by the time, and it's not, I don't mean to touch on the end, but when it was my end, when I said, you know what, I just got on a plane from coming from working with George Benson and Greg Fillingaines and Dexter Wanzell and all these masters of the roads piano. Mm. I can just call Dave Hampton and tell him I'm coming back and he doesn't have to get a sub. Mm. I, I think I'll just go now. And it wasn't, mm. I didn't sort of wimp out. I just thought he doesn't want me here. He's being really contentious unnecessarily. And so when I left, I kind of figured, well, it's going to be six months until he's going to call me again or a year, but I figured it would happen at some point. And then when he died, I went, Oh, and I sort of didn't process it for a while. Mm, and, yeah. but what I, I think he was on a good track, um, but you are totally right on the tour. It lost that special nature of being autobiographical. And then it was more just about playing his songs. And then I thought it yeah. lost the magic of it. And by the time if Atlanta, you... now I, candidly, I've never heard Atlanta. I haven't listened mm. to any of those. Well, if you, I think if, stuff. if you just take the night that, that Denise passes out, it's, it's a, a linear line down. In fact, it's, it's probably hyperbolic. He drops off oh, very oh. quickly from being hy uh, biographical to this is just another iteration of uh, the show. And, you know, standard prints, he would just drop in new songs because he was bored of playing the same yeah. 25 of them, you know, but it's interesting that you say that. Like, do you think it was it was such a clear delineation that it was the grief of Denise? I don't know. I, or vanity, if we call it that. I, I would have to look at the timeline because, frankly, I don't know what day she died. But I, I do know he made me erase one show. He came yeah. off stage. He turned, said, erase that show. Right. And I with the computer I'm on. No, 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 it wasn't. It was my 17-inch computer. I, I, I went, okay. And he just stood, stood there. So I went king right in the right. trash van and then he goes now empty the trash can and i went shift command delete and it went ching like that wow and man. i saw the trash van go to empty and then i was like okay cool and mm. he left and that's the only show he had me delete but i would i wonder if that was the day he found out because i i didn't even know until a, a you know after it happened that it happened yeah so i i want to say february 13th or 18th and I think it was Sydney, wasn't it, that you guys were in when he, he found out because he was just oh, about to go on stage. I'm not sure about that. Oh, but Melbourne. Sydney, I, I don't know. It's, maybe, they're they're all blended. I do point. know. I do know that um, that he uh, was in Sydney. We had such a beautiful setup at the Opera House. And I had tons of PA in there. Right. We were, they asked me if I should. I said, what are all these seats in the back? They, oh, we hmm. figured we'd close them off. I said, no, open them up, sell them. So they sold yeah. a couple more thousand seats in the back. There were PA already back there. Yeah, It was really going to be great. And then he was just in such a horrible mood. And mm -hmm. in between shows, he brought me in his, his room and he said, the piano should sound like this. And he, there was an upright Yamaha in that room. And he played right. the 
the he he played the uh, horn line from the Max or the piano line from the Max. Okay. And he said, "See, that's what it should sound like." And I said, "Yeah, but I said, yeah, man, but we're in an acoustically treated room <laughs> that's ten feet by fifteen feet. It's yeah. we're playing we're playing in a place that's meant to throw the sound everywhere." Like I I mm. just didn't under I mean he really didn't understand he looked at me like he didn't yeah. understand the physics of playing a larger venue than that 10 by 15 room so mm. i just was i thought man this is the this is the end this is coming to the end this is not something's wrong well of course yeah. months later i would find out what was really wrong mm. do you and know then, we we've had such a lovely conversation i don't even know if yeah. I, I kind of want to go there uh with the end and and yeah. uh, to talk about that um can I ask you one question? Because I'm sure Brian's got some questions that you know Patreon would like asking. The Patreon questions, yeah. Yeah. Your wife's an opera singer. Yes. Have you worked the board for your wife in any? I form? have. We we met on a tour of a, a pianist, a regional pianist here in Minnesota, um, hired me, and caught me at a perfect time when I wasn't touring. It, it, between usually between around Halloween and Christmas is a time that a lot of tours don't launch. They don't go mm -hmm. out then, and. Uh, this pianist's husband called me and said, "Hey, would you work <clears throat> with us? She, we, she's, we've been to your shows and they sound great. We think you can make her grand sound great. She's got a nine-foot grand. <clears throat> no problem, sure." And then I meet her singer and we fell in love. So wow. I mixed her on a whole tour as we were getting to know one another. And uh, my wife's been responsible for my understanding of the physiology of the voice and. Mm -hmm tonality and i've been able to sort of retroactively go back and say oh that's because that singer didn't glottalize that part or asked they aspirated that part or they were in their mask or they're you know i've been able to employ techniques and i've learned about the physiology of the voice and those two beautiful little bat wings back there that are so yeah. precious and that though that's the instrument that like brian will be playing how he's playing until he either gets too old or too frail or too big, like to actually physically do what he's doing. Mm -hmm. Like you listen to Neil Sean and he's still playing incredibly well. Oh, yeah. But the voice, the voice, we use that instrument every day, all the time. So that's the one that, that gets, you know, it just gets denuded of, of, of just ripped apart over time. Ask Steve Perry, my favorite vocalist well, of all you, time. You've just said Neil Sean, the Sean, uh, Neil Sean. And I thought straight away, Steve Perry is. Steve Perry is a perfect example, example yeah. of someone who, who, it was is not even it's pretty objectively he and and um freddie mercury but you can yeah. make an argument for steve perry being the greatest countertenor yeah. of all time in the correct keys night mm. after night six nights a week 15 years yeah. whatever it was and not changing keys and still bringing it every night mm. and there's a price to be paid mm. that price he's going through now because when you hear him say yeah. now you go oh i hear it in there somewhere but it's not yeah, you it's mentioned Whitney same. Houston before. And, you know, I, I read all these comments under our videos. We lost her way too soon. It was like, we lost her in about 1994. Like, right. vocally. Yeah. She she yeah. was broken. Sadly, she, was, yeah. she wasn't. And that was never going to come back because it's not, you can't untrain that muscle, or at least I don't think you can. Do you think and, there are any part, vocalists part of, that... Yeah, part of what we lost but, is, yeah, we lose vocalists because they lose their instrument. Yeah. And... um or they change production too much. There's a lot of reasons. And I think the, the saddest part of all that is that she lost her instrument. Imagine mm. we as selfish fans go, oh, she's not singing the same. Oh, she's trying yeah. to make a comeback on this TV. I worked some TV show 
and she was on the yeah. same one and it was not good. And, yeah. um, but imagine, you know, it's one thing to just be critical of someone and saying, oh, they don't have it anymore. But imagine how personal and terrible it feels to know that you don't have your instrument anymore and people are looking to yeah. you for it. That must be incredibly lonely. And I don't envy any artists, including Steve Perry, whom I almost deify as a vocalist, to, to not be able to sing Mother Father anymore or sing the yeah. end of uh, uh, so many of those songs um, yeah. that, that, are, that are so I, high and so pure. But, I heard but someone describe it, that it's, mm -hmm. it's like watching a child grow, that it's still your child when they get, you know, terrible teenage years and grow mm -hmm. into an adult. Mm -hmm. But that, that child at five years old is never coming back. And it's, it's almost that, that same analogy could be put to the voice, you know? Yeah, we hold we hold our our performers um, in responsible for looking the same, and mm. sounding the same, and playing yeah. the same, and it's wholly and entirely unfair because we what we're not doing what they're we're restraining their growth as artists. You know, people shouldn't want to lock Prince in a room with. I was wrong to think that that would have been a good idea. I was, you know, people have to let people like Gaga, really creative people grow and do what they want and if they fail they have enough commas to not care yeah yeah in their bank account but let them yeah. do what they want let them grow and 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 yeah. and support them as much you know i heard a great super great quote by steven spielberg's mentor <clears throat> um who said to him i will support you as much in failure as i do in success and oh. that's really powerful and it if is. we as fans yeah. could 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 support what uh, not only Prince, but many people are trying to do as artists. And yeah. if, if we lose, if, if they lose us and we don't like it, we can just agree to disagree and move on to another artist. But um, <clears throat> I love the fact that Chris, that you want to hear the stuff in the vault. It's important to you. It's going to not just as candy for your ears, but it's something that will get, that will allow you to grow in, um, harmony with probably your favorite artist let it'll let you yeah. know them better it'll let you understand them better and yeah. you'll have your well, own certainly. journey by listening to that stuff yeah or well, certainly i'll think that i know them better because it's yeah. it's more of it, it's a jigsaw puzzle that will never be full but the more pieces that i have the the, the better i think it is um i mean i, I could talk to you for weeks Never yeah like i've i've got uh, a few more patreon questions for you Scott. Let's, I, let's, I literally... let's do them sure. and then yeah yeah, yeah. That hopefully we'll, we can we'll wrap keep up. The, the door let you go have we beat, have we beat susan's place. record yet hold on <laughs> we can I think uh, so. oh yeah, yeah oh, we yeah. can uh keep the door open for another day though definitely because i got a oh, whole yeah. list of stuff well but sure. some patrons we got a wonderful patreon community um so from our good friend and patreon ellie um you kind of already touched on it but one of his questions was was there a time or two that Prince was being unfair to Scotty and, and the crew when setting up a show because he was just in a bad mood? Uh, many of those times. Um, he, um, I, I tend to give him more credit for being understanding of things. Like if you really, if, he, if I really needed time, he would see it in my expression. Like, hmm. man, I, you know, just like 20 more minutes, you know, and we'll, it'll be, I don't want it to be, it's not ready for you and please give us the time. And he would be understanding of that. I saw actually more of that than I did him throw hissy fits, but yeah. he, he threw some hissy fits. Um, usually it wasn't when I was there because we were touring and we had a big enough production that it, everything was already ready. 
and we were probably ready about two hours before we needed to be just excuse me in case he came in but ellie can rest assured that there were times that he was unfair and fortunately i didn't get to see a lot of that um but yeah the stories are out there and and he he just wanted people to be good at what they did and he didn't understand people who weren't good at what they did and were getting paid for it yeah right that's why he wanted to find monitor engineers per feedback like if you made a feedback six times you basically worked free that day or you know, oh, that, or whatever. We have questions like, about that too. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> uh, Ellie also asked, uh, in all, how long did the rainbow children take to make from start to finish? Ooh, that's a good question. I don't know that. Um, who was, who were the engineers, Joe and Femi on that? I think um, <clears throat> that was a labor of love for his, for sure. Cause it had a thematic, uh, Chris would be able to speak on this better, but it was a real theme. Um, some say anti-Semitic theme as well. Like that, oh, okay. that, that, that album had a very, Chris, Chris has probably forgotten more about that album than I know, but, um, but I would think not long because it did have kind of a polished sound. It wasn't quite his, yeah. it wasn't a poppy polished pop sound, but it did have a certain sound to the whole record that I think uh, my guess is that it was cut in a short amount of time. That would be yeah. my guess. I think it's, I think it's all Femi and I think it was all done in a week or 10 days oh, with John Blackwell. Well, I, I think it was one of them where he'd almost fallen in love with John. Yeah. Uh, at that point and that was their way of you know that conversation that i think he had musically yeah. with people um uh, can i just very ask you a, a short question sure I've, I've heard rumors that he wasn't particularly nice at times to john can you just elaborate and, and put a little bit of texture yeah to that? for, for yeah, sure he wasn't nice people kind of use it Blackwell. as a stick to, to yeah people use it um, as a stick to beat prince with and I'd, I'd like to know a little more well uh i think that rightfully so um John, <clears throat> John was as great a drummer as he was. Um, he was reactionarily, he was always a step. There was always a beat, so to speak, between right. what was said to him and how he would react. He just, right. he was kind of a slow Southern feeling kind of guy. He just would mm -hmm. go, uh, no, I don't think so. Things like that. And John was a, you know, honorary, if, if honorary, he was a professor at Berkeley. Like he knew what he was doing. John is a, a student of drumming oh, and yeah. was, yep. you know, phenomenally talented. Prince would pick on him because John was the slowest camper. You know how they say you don't have to be the mm -hmm. fastest camper. You know, you just have to be fast. You know, you just have to fast not be the slowest. Be. Yeah. Like if you're getting chased by a bear, you don't have to be the yeah, fastest yeah. camper. You just have to just be not your friends. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so uh, John was the slowest bear. Like he's just the uh, one that Prince could pick on. And then John would just sort of go and laugh it off. And then what made it worse was something I did, which I had to do and didn't know it would work against John clearly is that I put drum glass around John because it was Prince's first foray into ears. I couldn't afford to have yeah. it go wrong. So I had mm. to put drum glass around John. Isolate the sound. Yeah. The mistake I made was not making my own custom glass about four feet high so that he could still have a relationship with Prince hmm. in with real sight, with real air. I just bought the standard six, two six footers and I put him around, you know, put around. So he was in his own cage. So Prince started to make jokes at John's expense. Like he was in a fish tank. Somebody, one member of the NPG music club said to Prince while he was doing one of the sound checks, why is, why is John back there? in that box and prince said bad breath 
you know, and <clears throat> that's fine. That's cute. Mm. Um, but when he was mad at John, he would walk back and take his guitar and just go and thump it on the glass during a show. Um, wow. And, and all of that is like, well, could you could take it this way or that way. The one for me was that when John lost his child, mm. um, I believe John was on the phone with his wife when she discovered that their child had drowned. Um, to me, that's something that I can't imagine trying to come back from that um, in a year, much less a week or two weeks. Sheila played that gig at the Essence Festival. Uh, excuse me. Sheila played a gig to cover for John. John then did a short time later, the Essence Festival with his right. picture of his daughter on his shirt. And he stood up and I couldn't believe he was there. But then subsequent to that, we went right back on tour. Well, John's wife wasn't on tour. She was back at home. They had just lost their child. He was spending an inordinate amount of time, rightfully so, on the phone mm -hmm. during our rehearsals and soundcheck. At some point, Prince said on the mic, he said, because I never had Prince in the PA when he was out next to me because he would be talking to the band members and I would have his vocal muted in the house, but everything else on. Yeah. And, and Prince went, John. And then he looked at me and said, Scotty, turn it on. And I went, oh no. And I unmuted his mic and John wouldn't join the band. He was up in the seats with his wife on the phone. Hmm. I could almost cry talking about this. And he said, John, you got to get over it. Get down here. We're working. Oh. And I remember just that sort of, uh, true vitriolic you know hatred that i felt for prince at that moment as did everyone else with a conscience yeah. um should john have been there no did john choose to be there yes and that was good enough for prince but it wasn't good enough to be a respectful loving human being that would have sheila played all the shows and paid john anyway mm -hmm. Yeah. Or brought his wife out on the road or something. Yeah. Shit. I could think of six things that he could have done to be more accommodating of someone who just lost their baby. Mm. Yes. Prince was unfair to John unjustly. So, and, um, and then I thought the unkindliest cut of all was that John's ability to even move his arm was taken at the end for someone. Mm. And that's one of those instruments that you see taken away from you. And then you feel the people judging you. So, you know, that's when we start doing anything we can to get that vocal back on. That's when we start pumping ourselves full of fillers and and all looking like the same person because we all get these cosmetic things done because we we desperately want to be loved mm -hmm. by people. And sometimes Prince didn't give a shit about anything but what he was doing. And I respect that. I don't agree with it. But everyone was there on on his for him and so i do understand it i just don't agree with it yeah and uh, you know the story of 1988 love sexy tour sheila's grandmother passed I, I think it was and he wouldn't let her fly home for the the funeral because how do you get a drummer at short notice and that one i have more time for but to say that to, to john you know no and there probably were probably before the the funeral has even happened. I mean, it's, it's terrible. I'm, I'm very close to <clears throat> all five revolution members and there were unforgivable jokes about uh, people's families and histories and backgrounds thrown around all the time. Mm. And um, 
I just think it's, it's one of those things where you're picked on in your life and then you're going to find a way to, to turn some of that around. And some of that is just, yeah. unfortunately um, there's, again, there's a cost to that as well. And I don't mean to just pl please believe me. I don't mean to just get on here and throw these things at someone who isn't there to defend themselves. As far as I'm concerned, he was there to defend himself and, and he, he doesn't have anything to say about it now because I was yeah. there, I lived it and I was around it and I yeah. thought it was just awful. And it's the kind of behavior that I think, you know, Dave Hampton and I call it artistic behavior, whether that means drug use or somebody who just smokes weed all day or does, you know, a bunch of X or, you know, whatever. And um, that's all artistic behavior. That's something that can help their art and work for them. But I don't see any benefit in being just, just, just awful to someone. And I'd seen it. Yeah. And a lot of people excuse that behavior because they say, well, that's so-and-so or that's Prince or that's them. I, I don't buy it. I think it's an, just an awful thing. And um, yeah, there's a, there's a line that is just quite clearly crossed at that point, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, Ed Soy, uh, another great Patreon member of our community. He said, what were the consequences when you failed to turn the lights up or down on time? Oh, well, if, um, with in Roy's in Roy's era, there were there were no consequences because I, I don't think Roy probably made a mistake because Roy is one of these um, people that knew the show as well as the musicians and Roy's like totally on point. And Roy was actually playing the lights as an instrument like they were a keyboard. Right. Mm -hmm. That's that's how that's how it went for, for in Roy's era. <clears throat> um, unfortunately, Prince never allowed there to be tracks or click track or time code during a show. OK which would have led lights to be done automatically the way Roy does them now. Roy programs a beautiful show and then everything's time-coded. So everything happens and the lighting people are like this. I'm mixing, <laughs> yeah. but the lighting people are like this. Um, but Sport and John, somebody and Mac Mosier and a bunch of these lighting engineers, they had to actually you know, play it like it was an instrument and they were always behind all of them, almost all of them. It's just, a, it's a nature of, of actually heating up a lighting element as well and yeah. having to guess when he was going to throw a big, a big accent or something. So I, I don't, um, I, I don't, uh, uh, you know, Prince once said that lighting engineers have it easy because um, he said, look at Scotty, he's got to do what I did in the studio, hmm. recreate it, but you just need to flash on the beat and do a yeah. blackout at the end of the song and you're a hero. But that, that's really not true. There's a lot of pressure in lights. You have to match the intensity of the music and the right color scheme and set yourself up for blue. If you're going to go to a blues section, all those kind of things. And they had to do all that with these extremely um, uh, intricate lighting. Uh, I, I tend to think a lot of the lighting was they overdid, they had too much because yeah. then you have too many choices and then they can't access those choices. But hmm. um, Roy seemed to have no problem with it back in the day. And, um, and it's just a matter of, yeah, the, the penalty was probably financial, but more worse than financial is getting called out for it, mm -hmm. getting called out in front of your colleagues and peers for having, you know, I watched some of, I've seen some live stuff on YouTube where people say, Hey, Scotty, did you do this gig? And I go and look at the gig and then I have to tweet about it. And I go, Nope, wasn't me. Cause he'll say the sound man's screwing up. That's the sound yeah. man's fault. You know, just. He took out a full page ad in some Chicago paper apologizing for the sound at United Center in yeah. 2000 and whatever, because, you know, that's never fun. And and uh, I saw one where he, he sent Josh Welton down to take over the board from the guy. 
oh. in in Leeds uh, during that third eye girl period. Yeah. Um, and it was brutal. I mean, you know, to people who didn't know the show, they didn't realize that Donna's guitar was meant to be there because it was already loud enough with, you know, him playing. Yeah. But there was an entire solo missed. And this is the first like 30 seconds. So I don't even know if they'd sound checked to a point where yeah. he was he was happy or they'd, they'd reset the board or something. But I mean, his tongue was vicious. Yeah. And, you know, to send a guy down and have him run through the crowd and he called the the sound guy out by name, and you know British people love this kind of stuff, don't they? You know, we we love a, yeah. an underdog who's been getting bullied. You know, so everyone in that little area started to sort of call out the name of the sound guy. Don't stand for that, you know. And it, I think ironically, I I remember it as being Brian, the name. Group. Like, oh, don't yeah. stand for that, Brian. You tell him to, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just uh, it was a very um, I I get a lot of the, the the idea that you know dave and yourself refer to it as like artistic but there's there's lines that are crossed on a, yeah. a humanity level and this is this is it i mean you know it's the reason i didn't really want to talk about the end is i don't particularly want to end what has been such a lovely you know three-hour conversation yeah with painting prince in a bad light but i also wouldn't want to not paint him as human which that's exactly right. and i think that's the ultimate lesson in prince is that hmm. behind the shades behind the cool walk and the one hand in the pocket and the Oscar deliveries and the solo at the hall of yeah. fame and all the stuff you want to put together. A guy that had his vocal facility all the way till the day he died. Yeah. A, a guy who's, <clears throat> uh, whose physical anatomy, physiology of his head and ears and voice should have been studied. Yeah. Somebody who, somebody who, had a chance he probably had a chance to donate a science his brain to science should have done that like there's so many things i could i'm just riffing right now but mm -hmm. all these things uh, he was that's the way to end is to say he was very very special but there are lessons to be learned in being flawed and i think um mm -hmm. the the similarities are what make us come together as people yeah the things that we all go through not mm -hmm. the differences if you just want to celebrate differences then just be into sports because those people are doing things that none of us can do, right? Ronaldo, you know, people are doing things that are just other, truly mere mortals at, at yeah. sports. But if you can, if you can, if you can issue a heartfelt apology to a friend of yours that you've wronged, you've mm -hmm. already won up to Prince, because yeah. he was he was didn't wow. he wasn't capacious enough to even issue an apology. That the couple of times he apologized to me, they were in writing. One of them, I read his apology to me. And Scotty, his uh, Zachary March, his security guy said, did you read it? And I went, yeah. And he goes, whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. And I went, no, no, I want to wow. keep that. And he said, no, I said, never. <laughs> and since then, since he passed wow. and Scotty and I talk, talk yeah. now and again, Scotty said, man, I'm sorry. I should have just given it to you. <laughs> he's, the, he's the bodyguard who caught him at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, isn't he? Because yeah. he, he still yeah. works on and off at Paisley. And I've, he I've does, he does. Zachary's a lovely yeah. guy. He's he a lovely, a very lovely, lovely guy. guy. Yeah. And, um, and uh, you know, there is a camaraderie that we all have, whether it's the revolution or, mm. you know, there, there may be some disseminate, there's some dissemination between the, the oh, is, it the, is it Levi's band, you know, the, mm. the MPG, that era, is it Sheila, is it Oakland Sound, is it the revolution, is it this, is it Third Eye Girl, all that mm. stuff. In life, we all point out differences. When the great comedian George Carlin, that I love so much, said, we have yeah. way more in common than we do different. So why aren't we celebrating yeah. our commonalities? Yeah. And 
so people in the revolution, Sheila's band, uh, uh, the, the whole Oakland sound, um, Third Eye Girl, all of us have more in common as people who, as I say, many are called, few are chosen, right? Yeah. Susan, Peggy, um, Dave Hampton, all these studio engineers, all the people, the Ruth, uh, all the people yeah. who were his assistants and Takumi and all, everyone has more in common than they do different. Yeah. Some of us executed yeah. at a higher level for a longer period of time. And we're called mm -hmm. back multiple times, even after arguments. But that doesn't mean that our gift was any greater or less. It just yeah. means that he was comfortable around us and we helped support his career. He was fully capable mm -hmm. of doing most of that on his own, but he just couldn't be in two places at one time all the time. So he yeah. had people stand in for him. I look at myself as a really good, solid, his best live sound stand in for him. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, but he couldn't do what I did. He just simply didn't have the experience. Yeah. He couldn't. Yeah. He couldn't suddenly conjure up thousands of performances at thousands of different places in the world and use that mm. experience to create the sound that worked best for the crowd that was my job it wasn't his uh you and know he, and he had a go in 95 mine. didn't he on the he did on that, he did that and tour, it was and, trying to make and, sound yeah. from the stage and it was awful and um yeah but you know what but he did it props to him i'm just sad for the people that came yeah. and experienced the bad sound i don't mind that he did it yeah. Um, I think he would have actually gotten along quite well with iPads now and walking up and adjusting your mix on an iPad. Mm -hmm. You know, I wish I could have gotten yeah. him. I, I wanted to do the thing that I uh, designed for him was called Purple Sphere that I patented the name, trademarked the name, the Purple Sphere. So it was right. the PA was in the center going out and no one needed monitors at all. You would just play in oh, Paisley wow. Park and it would all emanate from the center in a big ball. And yeah, you would just yeah. play. Nobody needed any monitors. And the crowd, it, they were all at front of house solving that yeah. issue yeah. well it didn't come to be and maybe someday mitch or whoever runs paisley park in the future will say hey scotty let's try that once let's play back some mm. shows some shows from the center like you were going to do and i can only know, imagine a celebration if they they pump some of the live shows through in that that would be a fantastic experience yeah because then you're all instead yeah. of prince always wanted to fire in with sound which only yeah. works for a certain portion of the room fire out yeah. and it always works because then it's one single source point and I tried yeah. to explain that to him in not that many words. Otherwise I'd lose his yeah. attention. But, um, you know, I still yeah. feel like I have a lot to give mm. to Prince because I feel like he, you know, people don't really trust me when people hear that he wasn't even one of the top five artists that I work with. They go, mm. what? And they want you to enumerate mm. the, you know, who? I go, okay, Stevie Wonder, Madonna, Gaga. Yeah. Like I can name off artists and yeah. they don't want to hear that. <clears throat> mm. But I will say that Prince gave me more than any other artist, which was be fearless. Um, do always do your best, always be prepared yeah. and no mistakes and teach others. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what I got from him. So I, I feel like I still have more to give him and yeah. the piano show would be a great way for me to help give people and, and, and whether the estate wants to take me on as somebody who can, you know, consult with them and say, oh, this was then and this would work well. And this was always like this. And oh, I remember yeah. that night and things like that. You need those people because we're the ones who keep the uh, oral record of his legacy alive. People like Susan, yeah. people like me, people like Roy, that can actually talk about working intimately with him. And don't take, don't, don't for a second think I take for granted that your podcast today and all these hours that we put in will not become part of the canon of prints in a sense because the, it's part yeah. of explaining a very um deep and mysterious figure 
these give insights, yeah. you know, as will the, the, the documentary, the Netflix documentary, whenever that comes out, yeah. those things will help us understand. Yeah, exactly. I mean, things that you've said today, will, you know, if everything goes to plan, pop up in some Dwayne Tudal book in, you know, sure. five, 10 years time. It's, it's yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, I know we're, we're, we're conscious of time uh, yeah. and we need I'll to come back you anytime you guys want to. I, yeah, well, I think, I think it would for... be great to speak. <clears throat> I'm, I'm a podcast fan as well. <clears throat> and when I see, when I look and it says three hours, 28 minutes or so, I go, oh, and unless it's Joe Rogan, like somebody that everyone loves deep diving <laughs> yeah. on Rogan, right? Yeah. They always love that deep dive. Yep. If, he, if, if Joe Rogan has Randall Carlson on for four hours, everyone goes, yes, four hours of Randall Carlson. But I know I'm not that way. I'm not that person. But I, I do think if people make it this far and yeah. they enjoy it, I would be happy to come back. Whatever serves you and your community. Of Absolutely. People. I enjoy being That'd part be of that. That'd be fantastic. Uh, so that was a fascinating discussion. So many things like you guys were talking. I didn't want to say anything. Uh, Scotty, I have about 4,000 other technical questions to ask you that maybe we could get to another day, but we really appreciate your time. And uh, we can, you know, if you're willing, we'll leave the door open for uh, doing this again in the future. That sounds great. I'd love to do it. We still haven't really talked guitar yet. Yes. Real guitar talk. <laughs> Absolutely. So we'll but, but thank you so much for your time. And uh, remember, everyone. Absolutely. Practice hard. Practice smart. And we'll see you soon. <laughs>